I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. And you're listening to Snakes and Stogies. The only podcast dedicated to fine tobacco. All things reptile related. And the people who love them. As part of the Herpeticulture Network. Hey. Hello. Salutations. Salutations, yes. Good good evening. The bowl full of crust and a, a bottle of mush. A bowl of crust? Yes. It's like when you leave the cereal bowl out overnight. Uh, it just turns into like cement lining the inside of the bowl. It's just like 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 slightly tacky Elmer's glue with like uh, specks of cornflake. Uh. Honey bunches of oats. <coughs> ah, Monday nights. Here we are, episode 175 of Snakes and Stogies, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network, which is brought to you by blackboxcages.com, cold-blooded caffeine, Fulvia's apparel, Puget Sound Bythons, <clears throat> and uh, Sudafed for me. Sudafed. Pseudoephedrine. Pseudoephedrine. Look at that. There he is. I didn't scroll down to the bottom of the page and see inner studio. So I've just been sitting there with <laughs> camera and mic for 15 minutes. <laughs> well, you're here now, brother. Absolutely. Yeah. So blackboxcages.com. Use the code THN at checkout if you're going to get yourself something. Uh, might as well get yourself something nice. And Blackbox has nothing but nice stuff. And if you use that code THN, save yourself a little bit of money. Uh, from our, our gift to you from the black box crew uh and then use the code thn at checkout as well on fulviusapparel.com get yourself a shirt like sir dustin there he's rocking that that circus dynastica shirt and uh got some orders going out in the morning um get some get some shirts and stuff and then puget sound pythons Go hunt them down on Morph Market. See what they got for sale. Grab yourself something cool. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram. And cold-blooded caffeine. You like coffee. Phil likes coffee. I like coffee. I'm sure Dustin likes coffee. There we go. Oh, Look at that. It. He's got it in, in the hand. And actually, if you actually use the link in the description, because we now have, have that affiliate link. Oh, really? Grab yourself some cold-blooded caffeine. And I mean, you use that link, help us out a little bit, all that good stuff. Uh, we are working on something with them. Don't know when we're going to actually sort of unveil that. Uh, I won't spoil it. So go get yeah, some coffee. Get some coffee. But we're here. It's Monday. It's uh, it's a million degrees still, and I'm tired of it. And uh, apparently, there's a hurricane that's coming. Yes, 
It's going it, right over you, isn't it? Uh, it's actually going just past me. So I'm going to get most of the right. Muck but it's like going muck. just above you. Like yes, yeah, yes, yes. It's hitting so Billy like full full bore. It's, right? it's gonna it's gonna whack Billy, Harry, Skyler, uh, Derek. Uh, I'm trying to think of which who else of our friends it's just gonna collide with, but it's only a cat one. So like, grab your Amstel light. In your cooler and ch- chill. Lawn so load chairs, up, load indoors. up on cigars. That's right. Yep. Get your cartons of cigarettes and your beef jerky. During Hurricane, uh, fucking Ingrid. I don't know what her name was. It was one of the ones after Matthew. I survived off tortilla chips for two days. That's horrible. Tortilla <laughs> chips and water. That's now really, I'm a, now I'm a hardened really gross a hardened uh, survivor. Fair enough. I've been and through, I think there I've was there was several. a pack of pop tarts or two in there. Oh, so. was there? It was dessert. Yep. Yeah, they're a grave inconvenience in the southeast. So, yeah. but fingers fingers crossed for all of our friends. Justin Olson texted me this morning because he just moved down here. And so this is like his first, this baby's first hurricane. And he's like, what do, what do I need to expect with this? I'm like, oh, is there one coming? Because I, yeah. <laughs> I literally haven't been yeah. paying attention. I was like, is there one headed our way? He's like, uh, yeah, I think so. And I like went and looked at the tracker. I was like, it's fine. Yeah. I ain't, I, uh, I ain't worried about no hurricane. We've been having some crazy weather. Just like it rains every day down here this time of year, but. It's been raining like later and like m- more heavily with like actual storms, not just like an afternoon drizzle. And uh, dude, it's just been it's been bizarre. My county had all kinds of craziness today. Uh, the police rescue helicopter crashed in, in the city. Jesus. Yeah. And like you, you watch the videos, it looks like friggin Mogadishu. It's it's horrible. And Black then down, son. Yeah. And then you, you, you had that happen this morning at like nine in the morning. And then there was like four or five collisions on the interstate. So then then there was like traffic lights out because of the storms. And like, dude, my county, it took me 45 minutes to go home. And there's something about yeah. like hurricanes in particular. And like when they start showing up like this, people lose their damn minds. I know, man. It's bizarre. Like You'll be like a week and a half out from a hurricane actually making landfall, assuming it's actually going to stay on the path that they're saying it's going to, which it rarely does. Right. And people right. are already like loading up on like water and, and, and milk and bread and toilet paper. And it's like, well, it's not yeah. even here yet. For all we know, it could be nothing by the time it gets to us. Like, it, Yeah. I don't know. I, I did I did watch though because this is the first like I guess real one of Florida this season. And uh I mean there was no was that was that one that hit Fort Myers last year? That was last year. Okay, so this is the first like real one this year, but I watched the hurricane. I guess they they put I don't want to say GoPros, but like they put like multiple cameras on the hurricane plane that the, the weather plane that they fly into the storm. Dude. Dude. Hell no. Dude, and it's crazy because oh, like, that you video know, was like absolutely not. You know there's turbulence and shit, but like it it doesn't even it doesn't look that bad. It looks it looks not sketchy. Fun. It looks like, sketchy. You gotta as hell. be you gotta have like give zero fucks to so. yeah, just brass balls. Which I've <sighs> actually I think I've heard though, those planes like 
when you're actually in the storm like that, it's I don't think it's as rough as it is like below it where everything's like really yeah caught up like I don't know. And I'm I not, heard that I heard that like, Roker. special yeah, I'm, I'm not Al Roker. Um, I heard they have like a special lightning rod system because the thing gets zapped like mm-hmm. all the time, but the pilots don't even know it because it just like diverts it, dissipates it or something. Yeah, yeah. There's no like actual impact from what I hear. It's ridiculous. Cray cray. Our species was never meant to be above ground like that. I'm I think it's, I, it's awesome. Light, though. space travel, all that. This is not what Darwin was talking about like he's like he's like you guys are doing the opposite of what i'm telling you to do like i understand flying is statistically safer than driving but your statistics of dying from a plane crash almost 100 percent. but bro the finches think (sighs) of the finches no there's just something about being in a giant metal tube thirty thousand feet above the ground that you have zero control over that i'm just not into i know Call me weird. I, I, I avoid it like the plague, but sometimes you just you have to do what you got to do. Even if I was in control of it, I don't still don't think I'd do it. But <laughs> yeah. well, Justin, we should have been mole people. Tunnels. Fossorial. Fossorial. Tim Fryson said, I'm in Southern California and the local tractor supply sold out of generators during Hurricane Hillary, which is the whole like West Coast hurricane thing is just bizarre to me because that just it's doesn't bizarre to them. <laughs> it's like, how does it feel? Yeah, right. <laughs> They're really not that bad though, for the most part. I mean, every once yeah. in a decade we get that really gnarly one, but since Matthew, we haven't had anything serious, so we're good. I, I yeah. think we'll be all right. But be prepared. You ready? We never finished that checklist we were going to put on the website. The disaster prep evac list. We got to do it. Keller, they wouldn't let you on an airplane. They imagine like something happens and Keller's on the plane and he's like, "Uh, I'm actually a a licensed commercial pilot. (laughs) And they, and like he lands the plane and like everyone claps. It'd be amazing. He's just secretly like secretly a C-130 or I, pilot. <laughs> if it were like lost or uh, like this is the end, I, I think he would be like Danny McBride. He'd just become like the cannibal king and have Channing Tatum <laughs> on a leash. <laughs> Except it'd be like Skyler or something. I was going to say Jake. <laughs> or Jake. Yeah. 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 But, oh, Keller, we love you. The animals are mad at us. Killer whales attacking boats. Sharks everywhere attacking people. Otters attacking people. Otters. I can see a gang of otters doing some damage, dude. Coming around the corner like the warriors. Not sea otters. They're too cute. Snapping their fingers. Like (laughs) West Side Story. West Side Story. (laughs) When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. Uh, Well, what are you? What are you smoking this evening? I am actually. This is my first time having one of the uh, habanos that Kevin Barron gave us in Daytona. So it says, I smoked them all. Selectos. Selectos Halloween. Halloween. Smells good. We're going to find out. What about yourself? Uh, Romacraft Aquitaine. Delicious. Good old standby. And then I got a Perdomo. Is this a 20th? 
20th anniversary Maduro in the Corona. Excellent. Great little smoke. I just see these I see these pitch black wrappers, man, on the shelf. And I just I just it's like a magnet and I'm like a moth to one of those damn zapper light things. Yeah. With the red band. Yep. French fried taters. Uh and our esteemed guest this evening, Dustin. <laughs> what 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 are you partaking in your adult your adult vice besides coffee? Coffee and nicotine pouches. I had a nub, uh, Habano, one of the longer ones, not the ones that's only like four inches. Yeah. But I cut it and it came completely apart, and I just got oh, oh that stinks. I've so had that Aver- happen a few times where I cut something and it's just a disaster, and I get so mad that I just throw it away. I just trash yep. it. Yeah, like, a for effort though. Yeah, is either smoke it and be spitting out little pieces of no. for the next hour, or just throw it away. And I chose the latter. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we were. I was. I was talking to Dustin yesterday. Um, and we. I mean, we talk fairly regularly, but he's a uh, official name is West Kentucky Exotics, and uh, we were talking about sort of tobacco related stuff. And because in the southeast, in particular, there's um, maybe not necessarily the southeast, but like Virginia. I know Tennessee is a big one. Um, more upstate in South Carolina, I believe, but like tobacco is grown mostly for the smokeless tobacco. So, um, you know, your, your chews and dips and things like that. Um, but Dustin had mentioned that, you know, he pretty much grew up on a tobacco farm more or less. And that's kind of one of the things that got him into, into reptiles and snakes and stuff. So I figured that'd be a really cool, uh, that's like a perfect, perfect fit for this. Um, hell yeah. Hell yeah. And it, I mean, it's cool because you sent me some pictures as well, and it's it's interesting to see how similar but how different the tobacco farming is in in the U.S. compared to Central America and, and down south. So yeah, but we're glad you're here, man. Yeah, man, glad to have you on. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. It's good stuff, man. And you got some great you got some great animals in the collection, man. Thank you. Yeah, it's a it's a small collection. I never, I never intend or nor want this to be a business. I mean, I think all five of the corn snakes I've produced this year, I've given to kids so far. I'm not hey. looking to make money out of it. It's just it's a hobby. I have a I have a pretty draining nine to five emotionally, and uh, this is kind of my escape. Hell yeah, man! And dude, giving babies to kids—that's like that's why we do it. You know, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so we'll uh, sort of jump into the the nitty-gritty the nitty-gritty uh, you know i mean we we let people decide whether they want to give us like the full story as to how you got to where you are currently in in herpetoculture and or if you want to give us the cliff notes version that's fine too but uh, you know like what are you keeping currently and how did you get to keep what you were keeping currently okay uh Right now, I have I have one berm. It's just a pet. Uh, my idea of trying to find suitable homes for a snake that gets that large is my own personal nightmare. But uh, I really got I, that was kind of a dream species for my of me because when I was younger, there was this little roadside zoo, you know, down the road that was like called Woods and Wetlands Wildlife Center, I think. And my grandparents bought like the summer pass. So when I was five and six, all through the summer, we would go up there and 
the guy that owns it got to where he knew when me when I would walk in and he'd just go pull out like his 11 foot albino berm and lay it in the floor and I'd just sit there and play with it. So that was always kind of a dream species of mine. Um, growing up on the tobacco farm, it was always there was always snakes around because when you're all the different processes that are required to grow tobacco, like uh, cutting it down, for instance, when you cut down rows of tobacco, you have to lay it down on the ground overnight because it has to wilt to be able to uh, spike it onto the stick and hang it on the wagon. If it doesn't wilt, you'll just lose all the leaves. The leaves are super brittle when they're fresh. So we would cut down the tobacco and lay it down. And the next morning when you're just picking up that much tobacco, it was almost unheard of to pick it all up and not find, you know, uh, heterodon platyrhinos or, uh, you know, one of those, uh, that was, that was, uh, that was the place that I found, uh, Eastern hog noses the most is underneath tobacco that we'd cut the night before. And then of course the dark fired process with the slabs, with the slab piles that sit there sometimes half a year mm -hmm. and the piles of sawdust that would get, you know, warm and moist underneath. That was a great place to find snake eggs and then packing the slabs in, we always found snakes. And, uh, I was just always super fascinated. I loved animals altogether, but I was always super fascinated with the snake. Just watching how effortlessly something moved that didn't have any legs, just it, it still fascinates me to this day just to watch a snake move. Uh, just the way it, it propels itself forward seemingly by magic just uh, always fascinated me. That's awesome. And, uh, when I was really young, my, my mom was deathly terrified of snakes. Like, deathly terrified of snakes but you know i would catch the the ringneck snakes and the the rough green snakes and I, I was terrible at keeping them you know i bought you know the i had the calcium sand and the heat rock from walmart for a rough green snake because i was five and there was no internet or any way oh, yeah. the right ways to keep them we've been there uh, man but that's that's just how I grew, I grew up was you know catching the snakes around i got to where i wouldn't even try to keep them Long term, I'd catch them, put them in a critter keeper for a week and then release them. Uh, I had a couple of ball pythons that were pets, uh, a lot of iguanas. I shared with Justin one day uh, when I was in high school, I caught a copperhead and kept it in a 20 gallon aquarium with books stacked on top and told my mom it was a northern water snake because I knew she wouldn't touch it anyway. It was completely dumb, but I was 17 and dumb and super brave. But yeah, it just kind of grew from there. And uh, there was a time in my life where I took off from keeping reptiles and uh, didn't have any and I got married. And that was always kind of one of my wife's rules was no snakes in the house. So I got super into keeping fish and aquariums. I had like 17 aquariums. And then when I had my son, all the aquariums had to move because they were in the lower level of house on the concrete floor. And there was no other room in my house that the floor joists would hold that much water. So uh, through a little bit of uh, <laughs> negotiating with terrorists, as Justin would say, uh, I was allowed the room upstairs, but I, that I could put anything I wanted to in it. And the first thing I bought was the barn. Nice, man. That's great. <clears throat> That's awesome. Just, just starting off with the flagship. I love it. That's right. Yeah. And then as far as what I'm keeping now, I, I kind of have a, an everywhere collection. Like I said, I don't really have a focus. I just I get what I like. Yeah, uh, I have a pair of Eastern uh, milk snakes just because I think they're really underrated. I, I love For sure. you know, red and gray. Uh, you know, the, the gray banded king snakes get so much love and 
we have an Easter milk snake on this side of the, of the country and lots of people don't give them love. So I've got a pair of them. I've got a little corn snake project. I've got a pair of Madagascarophus Malagasy cat-eyed snakes. I saw those, man, on your Instagram. They look great. Yeah, I, I love them, them gold phases ones. Yeah. Uh, and then I've got a trio of hognose. And that's about, and I, of course, my chondro. I just stepped into the chondro world. But nice. Uh, that's about all I'm keeping right now. What's the what's the corn project? The corn I had a butter motley and I paired it to a het a male female. That's right. unfortunately my corn project took a massive dive this year because the female just she had problems. Uh, she had like three stuck eggs and I soaked her and she wound up passing the three. But the next day when I found the three eggs, she had also ruptured. And uh, I, unfortunately, I lost the, oh, the damn. I had, so damn. That's kind of on pause for a little while, but now I'm I'm looking into uh, trying to get some Kentucky locality corn snakes, just because you know they're they're geographically separated, so you get some yeah. cool patterns and colors from them. That's awesome, man. How Have far you, uh... are you? Go ahead, Smitty. You go ahead. No, I was just going to ask real quick is, have you been to Northeast Kentucky where they have those crazy copperheads? I have. I don't know how far, far Northeast the crazy copperheads are. I have been to the Red River Gorge area, and I actually did find a copperhead there. I was looking nice. at timber rattlesnakes, but all yeah. I found was a copperhead. But, yeah, the, the copperhead there was gorgeous. It was really – it had a really darker red pattern than the ones we get on the western side of the state. Yeah. Yeah, because I know you're 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 pretty far from those those crazy uh, uh, aberrant gray ones and purple ones, but I know most people in Kentucky either keep them or have seen them and make it a mission to see them. So it's yeah. it's definitely on my bucket list. But go, go on, Smitty. What were we gonna say? I was asking. I mean, if if how you're on the opposite of Slade is like if you go straight through South Carolina and into Kentucky, like that bottom right hand corner. Like Slade isn't that far. I want to say it's like a seven-hour drive. Maybe it's not. It's not terribly far. But you're on the. Are you on the other side of Kentucky from that? Yeah, actually, the county I grew up in was right next to Kentucky Lake. We're in the Jackson Purchase. The county I live currently is actually on the Mississippi River. I'm one county from the very far southwestern corner of Kentucky. Oh, wow. But I've been to Slade. I've been to the Reptile Zoo. That's when mm-hmm. I went to Red River Gorge. Uh, it's about a five-hour drive. Okay. Yeah, I just remember looking at it on a map because I eventually would like to get up to the Kentucky Reptile Zoo to take a look around. And, um, you know, I follow them and have been for a long time. So it'd be really cool to go there and see it. But it's I I remember looking it up and it wasn't as far of a drive as I thought, because, I mean, a lot of that drive was just going from one corner of South Carolina to the other, which you can reasonably cross South Carolina and like diagonal, like adjacently, um, like five maybe six hours depending on where you're trying to go so yeah yeah i feel people also uh, underestimate the the vastness of kentucky too because it just it, it it almost goes as far north as it is east and west right yeah yeah I, it almost reminds me of south carolina upside down <laughs> that's accurate yeah. yeah. If you go to the Kentucky Reptile Zoo, basically the same exit that the Kentucky Reptile Zoo is off that main interstate. I can't remember. I think it's 75. It, the same exit 10 minutes down the road is the Red River Gorge. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. It, 
it kind of reminds me of like the same type of layout of country as like Gatlinburg and Carolina. And so there's a, there's a whole lot of little tourist stuff. So you can make a family trip out of it. And when I went there, I went there actually for a training with work, but I spent all the time in the evenings and in the mornings herping. And uh, Mm -hmm. I was, like I said, I was trying to find a timber rattlesnake. I don't even know if they're in that area, but it looked like really good habitat for them. Uh, I didn't do my homework as much because this was kind of a last minute training, but I found, I did find some copperheads, but uh, I reckon yes. copperheads are everywhere there. Yeah. When those things, man, when they're, when they're present, they're definitely present. That's for sure. There's usually no shortage of them. That's honestly probably the most common snake I find when I go out road cruising, which mm-hmm. I'll spend a lot of time road cruising in Land Between the Lakes, uh, National Recreation Area. And like a typical night, I might find an Eastern Black King snake and a gray rat snake or two, but like it's not unusual to find 10 plus copperheads crossing the road. That's awesome. When you, uh, when you find the Eastern Black Kings, are they smaller or are they larger? Because I've heard that the more, I don't want to say north and east you go, the smaller they get. But then I've heard ones that come out of Kentucky and, and northern Tennessee that are almost four and a half, five foot, whatever. Most of mine I've found has been on the smaller side. I have found a couple of pretty large ones, but most of the time when I find a large one, I, I think it's probably a female that I've either caught pulled out of a stump or something like that. Mo- it, just about all of them I find crossing the road are smaller males. Yeah, that makes sense, man. That's cool. It's awesome that you have all that by you, man. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I grew up in Calvary County. I was really lucky because there's only two counties in Kentucky that have all four of our venomous snakes, all four of our vipers, which is the cottonmouth, the copperhead, the timber rattlesnake. And we also have a very small population of the pygmy rattlesnake. The very Northern tip of their range goes right around Kentucky Lake. So, and the two counties that have been documented to have pygmy rattlesnakes is Callaway County, the one I grew up in and Trigg County, the one right next to it. Nice. Nice. And your, your copperhead or excuse me, your cotton mouths. Those are Western, right? I'm pretty sure that they're Western. Yes. They're the, the heavily banded ones. Yes. That's awesome. That's yeah, so heavily cool. banded. Sometimes they'll have the flat black back, but mm-hmm. there's always the big, wide, heavily banded. Yeah. That's great, man. That's great. I've only ever played with one of them. And uh, when my buddy Marcus was the herpetologist at a facility in Miami, we had one uh, that was on loan from, I want to say, some zoo in Kentucky, like not Kentucky Reptile Park, or, but there was some, where the hell was it? It was it was a zoo. It was on loan and uh, for like exhibit swap or something. And that thing was the meanest cottonmouth I've ever messed with. And dude, it would throw venom because as it struck, it was crazy. But it was the most gorgeous, broad banded cottonmouth I've ever had, ever seen. Awesome. That's why. Like those when I go, subspecies. What's that? Are those still a subspecies? Yeah. Yeah, so there's there's three now. There's East, West, and Florida. Oh. Yep. I know that a, a big hot spot for cotton miles around here is, of course, you know, Snake Road in Illinois. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, where I live on the far western side, it's only about an hour and 20 minutes. So I've spent some time up there, and 
that's just amazing to walk up and down the road when they start moving because you're literally like every hundred yards, there's another cottonmouth crossing the road. Wow. That's awesome. It's, it's great. That's cool, man. I have wondered about that place in particular, how like it's surprising to me that, that so many people can go to that spot on a regular basis and still find stuff. Cause you would think after a while, things would be like, this isn't a good spot for me to be hanging out anymore. There's all these bipedal creatures walking around stopping me to take pictures and i think it has a lot to do with just the geographical layout because like one side of snake road like going toward missouri is all flatland it's all like prairie almost and mm-hmm. there is no hills or anything else and then you all of a sudden come into this freshwater spring and swamp land and these big limestone bluffs and i think it's just the kind of the geographical isolation of those big limestone bluffs that make such a good ha- habitat that they don't leave. Yeah. Yeah. I also heard that there's not, it's almost all foot traffic with Herbers out that way too, right? There's no vehicles, right? Well, for like, I think it's four months out of the year, two months in the spring, two months in the fall, they completely close off the road to cars. Okay. And yeah. That's when the, the snakes are leaving the limestone bluffs and going to the water in the spring and coming out of the, of the water and going back into the limestone bluffs in the fall. And so they completely close it off. And I mean, DNR, uh, Department of Natural Resources in Illinois is always out there. Collecting is illegal. You can't even carry a snake hook with you. It's, it's literally a look, don't touch uh, type ecosystem. And they keep a pretty close eye on it. So uh, you know, I think that helps too, is that yeah. people aren't messing with them a whole lot. Yeah. The, uh, the cotton mouths I come across didn't even hardly uh, you know, gape at you or anything. It's almost like they got you they'd gotten used to it. Yeah. That's still great. It's awesome. Just trying to cross the, the damn road to go get something to eat. It's like Okay, I'll take some pictures. <laughs> yeah. Okay, another big beard. Yeah, let me go. <laughs> Got what you needed. Carry yep. on. Yep. So how does the um, going from, you know, aquaculture, did you take a lot from that and carry it over to herpeticulture? I took some. Uh, it was kind of a stepped process because the I, I said the first thing I bought was a berm, but before I ever even really got completely rid of the fish tanks, I had set up a terrarium for our frogs. And that was really similar, the whole bioactive thing, because what you're trying to accomplish in aquaculture is, you know, almost a self-sustaining ecosystem. Yeah, like a homeostasis. Right. Just to change water, to keep some of your nitrosoma and nitrobacter bacteria in check. But, uh, you know, you're wanting to keep it like an ecosystem that takes care of itself. So switching over to the bioactive was really similar. Uh Switching to the snakes, I mean, there's some things I took out of it, like just uh, I think I'm a little more anal about water quality than a mm-hmm. lot of people. But you can see I've got deli cups stacked up as my water bowls just because I don't want I know what it all funk can grow in the water. So that's just the easiest way for me to minimize that risk is just by swapping them out, even though it isn't great for the ecosystem, but it's it minimizes the risk to my collection. So I, I, there's some things I definitely did take from it, but uh, there's not a whole lot. It's it's a, it's really different in a lot of ways, but just staying on top of your maintenance is one of the lessons you learn. You know, get a schedule for your maintenance, take care of things when you see it, because if you don't, it'll get worse. 
Oh yeah, it's great, man. Were you doing salt water or fresh water? I done mostly fresh water. I kept uh, good eats, which are these little Mexican live bears. They're uh, a lot of them are extinct in the wild or critically endangered. And in aquaculture, mm-hmm. we can keep stuff like that, even though in our agriculture you can't. Uh, but I kept a lot of them. Uh, I did have one nano saltwater reef tank. And uh, I only wanted one of them because I probably spent I had more time on that tank than I did the other 16 combined. Yeah. Wow. wow. My dad tried saltwater briefly, and it was it – was, I won't say it was a disaster, but he he threw in the towel on it very quickly. I had I had two or three cyano outbreaks, uh, you know that red algae, and mm-hmm. it's just a nightmare. And you have so much rough surfaces that you've attached all your coral to to try yeah. to get it off. And if you don't get it all, it's going to come back, and it's right. just yeah. I think his part of his problem was he he really swung for the fences, and I want to say he he started with like. At a minimum, it was a 75-gallon aquarium. And well, he did always, not, the algae always, would not stop. He could not keep it under control. And then fish started dropping, and he just finally was like, this is too much. I can't. I can't yeah, I always heard that bigger aquariums, though, are better because, like, the saying in aquaculture was the solution to pollution is dilution. So more water, the, the easier it is to keep your parameters in check. But – uh First off, I'm not made of money, and saltwater aquariums are expensive. So a 20 gallons all I want to try, and uh, I I had to stay on top of it. I had to keep it topped off every day because as water evaporates, the salinity will go up, and oh yeah, it's just, it's just a whole bunch of little bitty things that you had to stay on top of. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy because you think about what like we as a as a hobby slash community or industry whatever you want to call it like what we had to learn as far as the growing pans pains of trial and error over the last you know 30 plus years i feel like it was even more like your margin for error is so much slimmer when it comes to to the fish and stuff like that because it's like even the smallest thing could be off yeah but i feel like you also have so much going on in those tanks in terms of like the balance of everything you know between the water and the salinity and um. Uh, you know the bacteria and all the things you got to have sort of just right and it's like imagine how many times like I think about condors in particular and how trooper and those guys uh, learning how, how to just incubate them to where you could get them to hatch and like the trial and error and years it took of figuring that out to where we finally got it to where we are now but then with fish like the smallest thing was off and stuff died and so now you got to continually like just ping pong back and forth trying to get it right. And I, I feel like it's, it probably took way longer just to get that kind of stuff figured out to where they could tell people like, okay, this is what we figured out we're doing wrong. This is what we should probably start doing as a whole yeah, to get, have more success. One way though, that the, the fish hobby, I think kind of outpaces us in some ways is like, you can go and find a out of the box, ready to set up fish tank that has, you know, you, you'll spend a pretty penny on it, but like some of the reef tanks, some of the higher end stuff, you can yeah. spend $3,500 and they have the sump pump and they have the, the truck, the uh, automatic computer system that automatically checks the calcium, the calcium and the calc washer and all that stuff. And, you know, that's something that, as a as a whole and as a hobby we kind of we haven't done 
We there's not a whole lot of companies going out there. And it may be a money thing. It may be just because the reptile hobby isn't as popular as the fish hobby. But uh, it's it we don't have a whole lot of companies going out and building from the bottom up setups and things to uh, deal with the with things that we have going wrong. Yeah, I think a lot of that is just out of necessity. Mostly, I mean, people. We're tired of spending money on these tanks and these fish for stuff to, you know, keep dying and having to restart that they finally, the people that had the, the ability and the technology and stuff and money um, put in the work to, to create stuff like that, that fills that, that gap of, you know, that technology and stuff. So I think that's, Absolutely. that's a big part of it because it is, we hear that a lot, you know, people talking about how much far ahead, like further ahead aquaculture is in comparison to herpetoculture. Um and I think it's a combination of that necessity, but also the fact that I, aquaculture is overall, I think, more popular and yeah, it's more socially around, acceptable. Been around longer, um, and you know that necessity, I think, is just a big part of it. People yeah. got tired of spending money on fish just for them to die. Well, I also think there's there's a lot more people that want a fish tank, and they are not like nobody. No, no doctor's office says. I want to put a snake on display or I want to put dart frogs on display. And the owner of the, of the clinic or the owner of the practice is not into snakes or dart frogs. While as there are plenty of doctor's offices and dentist's offices that have a massive right. reef tank where they just pay someone to take care of it. Cause it's just decor to them, yeah. you know? So I, I think it's just way more socially acceptable in that regard. But that was something I had thought about doing at one point with the darts was like going to some of the local doctor's offices and stuff and being like, look, like for X amount, like I'll set up a tank with dart frogs yeah, and like come and take care of it. And, and uh, something along those lines. And, and my vet buddy that I was living with at the time, he was like, dude, you should totally do that. And I, I just never really pursued it because I, I just didn't see people getting on board with it really until it's one of those things where if you see it firsthand like you see a really nice tank that's put together and you see the frogs hopping around in it, and then they'd be like okay i get it um and then having to keep up with fruit fly cultures even more than i was before you know that was well, a i had a, a an acquaintance that did fish tanks and like he would go to the he would go to the doctor's office and do their water changes once a week or once a month or whatever it was and he had a, he had a couple places that had dart frogs but what wound up happening is YouTube came around and they're like, okay, I don't have to worry about nitrate levels or nitrite levels or phosphate levels or ammonia levels or pH balance or salinity levels. I just have to learn how to prune some plants, scrape some funk off the glass and throw flies in. And they, they basically, they, they YouTubed him out, if that makes sense. And obviously I'm, I'm, I'm generalizing. I'm not saying dart frogs are that easy. I'm just making a generalization as to how my buddy lost those gigs, but there's well, such a natural fit though, for the compared to for people wanting to leave, get into herps that fill a similar void to the, to the fish and aquascapes and things like that. Like I, I wish at the time that my dad had that giant saltwater tank that if he had got that tank and then what, you know, said, what should I put in it? I would have said dart frogs in a heartbeat. Cause he could have had a really cool group of tinctorious or something in that. And it would have been awesome. You know? Yeah. I mean, my experience with the dart frogs was they were pretty easy. Once you got the tank set up, once, once the plants were rooted, once the, the, you know, all the, uh, 
isopods and springtails and stuff got to going and all that, they were pretty easy. And I was like you, Justin, the worst part of it was keeping the fruit fly cultures going because yeah. it took me a long time to figure out the timing on that, like to be able to have one going all the time. Cause I'd get to where I'd put set one up and then I'd try to be feeding off of it too early and it wouldn't really produce. Yeah. And, you know, it, it took me a long time to get that down. And uh, I got that pretty well down. The only reason I don't have the dark frog still is because they actually wound up escaping from a tank and I still don't know how they escape, but I found the crispy critter underneath. Them. Oh, uh, that's what rough, species man. was it? It was a uh, dinder beta serratus. El Cope was the oh, nice. locality, mm-hmm. but uh, I still have that tank and I've actually thought about trying to get a group of morning geckos going just for, mainly because they'll keep on producing. You don't have to do as many fruit flies. You can just mm-hmm. supplement with them and uh, might, might be good to get some, maybe some stubborn small feeders uh, eating with the morning geckos. Cause they, yeah. you know, even adults, they're just so small. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially with the cat eye snakes and the hog nose. Sure. Yeah. yeah I always, uh, for me, like the, the fruit fly cultures, I'd, I'd get a, I'd either make a new batch or I'd buy a new batch because I was waiting on another batch to sort of start taking off. And for some reason, the last couple batches that I had either started making or bought crashed very quickly. And so then it got to the point where I was like completely out of fruit flies. And it's like, well, now I got to order four more cultures and I would usually get them off eBay because that seemed to be the most cost effective way to do it. But there was still like $10 a culture. So it's like I'd spend the 40 bucks, get, a, you know, four cultures. And then within like inside of two weeks, they die. And I'm like, what the hell? So I'd shell out another $40 and I'd get these cultures. And like, same thing would happen. It finally got to the point where it was like, I just can't. Like, once you fall behind, unless you're making a ton of cultures at the same time, uh, you know, once you kind of fall behind on those, it gets, it can be, it's stressful. But then I should have, uh, I think they're called peanut beetles. They're basically like miniature mealworms, like the smallest version of that. And that's a good option for, for darts too, but I just, I never got my hands on them. Um, I'd get some in like my dubia colonies for some reason, periodically. I don't know if it was just a coincidence, but um, I wish I had started another, like a, a nice group of those. Cause that would have been a great alternative. Did uh, with your dubia, did you use egg carton? Yeah. Dude, I feel like because from all the years working in pet shops, I would see those things all the time in both cricket and dubia colonies. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and it's I think they're in the egg carton. It's entirely possible. I've and like they it. just they just show up. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Because they are so, the perfect size yeah. for darts, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. We got those, those worms are tiny, you know, the new newborn stuff. So. Yeah. We got a uh, spoiled down by me because. Uh, actually, my county, like Broward, there's a ton of dart people, and uh, there was, and when I was younger, say 20 years ago, whatever, there was a ton of Mantella people too, and um, especially in like, the Fort Lauderdale area, and you had like four or five guys that were religiously pumping out Heidi Eye, and like almost every pet shop had cultures on the cash register counter like right before you leave and you're like oh wow you sell you sell flightless idi yeah absolutely all right cool so like there was always people always had fruit flies down by me it, i mean it's, it's probably dried up a little bit because people i'm sure get a lot of stuff online but yeah. uh because way more online now but man it was it was never a question of uh can i feed my darts you know yeah 
Yeah, I think that was the the problem was is I just wasn't making enough cultures. Like yeah. If you start, if you go wide and you start with a good handful of them, I think it makes it much easier to sort of stay on top of them. And I do want to get back into darts at some point um, when I have a little more space because seeing Matt and Jamie getting theirs at Daytona. Yeah. Like I was at at Paul Shore's table because he's always he's usually at a lot of the shows here in the southeast and he sells, you know, breeds a ton of different dart frog species and it's talking to matt and jamie because they were wanting to get some thumbnails or, or something for the tank they were building and i was telling how much i loved rana tomea and so we're sitting there and i'm looking at them and talking about them and i was like fuck i miss these things man they're just they're so much fun yeah yeah peanut beetles i think is what they are i don't think they were bean beetles yeah they were you telling me like- there's some people you can get them from. Like you can get peanut beetles. They're, I mean, for some reason, starter groups of those aren't. They're not really like cheap in comparison to other feeders. But I think it's like mealworms. Like once you get them going, you're you're good. You're not going to have to worry about it again. Um, I got reached out to by a company that wanted me to try a black soldier fly larva, and I wound up not following through with it just because just life and. I don't have that many insect feeding animals as it is. And they want to send me like boxes of these frigging things. Um, I guess they thought that I had like a gecko farm or something, but uh, it looked really cool. I never messed with them. And I guess there is a smaller one that you can feed to like, you know, some tanks and, and is it really? uh, yeah. And um, it looked good, man. It looked good. It just looked like it may have been too fresh and taboo for people to really jump on it, but I guess people are actually using it. I would be worried about, I mean, supplementing them here and there would be fine, but given how packed with, like, fat and protein BSF larvae are. Um, yeah, because they're, like, maximum size, right? Uh, a little bit smaller. A little bit smaller, okay. But they're, you would have a, a pretty fat frog very quickly. Because anytime, when I was keeping Cresteds, I'd use the, the red label Pangea, which is has ground up BSF larvae in it. Right, and if I wanted something to like put on weight or or get babies really going, dude, that stuff was like steroids, man. It was really, yeah. So I mean, they're awesome. They're a great, you know, a great option for for feeders, especially if you have something that that needs to put on weight, like those and waxworms. I think are awesome options yeah. for that. But as far as like it being a main like regular part of the diet, um, outside of like one day a week or something. I think you'd have some pretty pretty obese frogs pretty quick. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair Given enough. how much they eat, man. Yeah, and I also kind of shied away from it because I tried waxworms with the knobtails. And, dude, if it's not, like, on the move, they don't give a crap, you know? So it's it was – they I tried maybe five, ten times, and I just had little bowls full of dead worms. And I was like, this is stupid. It's a waste of yeah. money. Yeah. But – I looked into, man, if I don't know if you've ever seen the process of how people harvest the black soldier fly larva. No. Because at one point I was like, oh, these like this would be if if they're not too difficult, like this would be a cool option to to try and do myself, but it's like way more involved than than other feeders. Like you gotta really? have like this really just bizarre setup and <clears throat> there's a it's a whole it's a whole thing that See, Patrick, yeah, last... he was using black soldier fly years before they got popular to feed fish. I raised parrots and the black soldier flies lay eggs and parrot poop under the cages. Yeah. So. Wow. 
It's a hell of a recycling. I like it. Yeah, basically what it was is like you'd have more or less a compost bin that sits under this screen cage. And then, you know, the flies would do their thing and then the larva would be growing in that compost beneath. And then there would be some way that you would sort them out from that. And it it's pretty it's pretty interesting. And the flies themselves are actually pretty cool. They look so much like a wasp. Like they're they they look really? pretty intimidating, but they're completely harmless. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. Oh. How's the uh, how's the chondro doing? It's doing good. Uh, it's ate every time I've tried to feed it. Uh, yeah, I haven't had any any trouble with it. But you may find some wood to knock on. None, no trouble with it so far. Uh, so yeah, I'm. I was I was a little nervous about getting chondro just because you know you hear so many people say, oh, it's the easiest snake you can keep, and then you also hear other people say, well, I got a chondro and it died a week later. So <laughs> I was just like, all right, which one's mine going to be? So. No, I think you you started out on the on the right foot by by getting captive bred and yeah uh, yeah I got it from Buddy Bashami and I know I know he's been breeding them for a long time and has a has a pretty solid reputation so that's mm-hmm. that was the one I got yeah man you're you're keeping a, a a great collection of different species and I I have no qualms you'll be perfectly fine. Yeah, if it's the eating only, regular, you're on a you're on a good track. The only snake that's uh, given me trouble so far was uh, one of my Madagascar Ophis. Uh Not the female. The female eats every time it, you know you open up the cage at night and it's it's ready to go. Mm-hmm. But the male for a long time just would not eat. Uh, so I got to where I was assist feeding it. It was the easiest snake I've ever assist fed. Period. Bar none. I mean, you could literally just get the pinky's nose started in its mouth and it would go ahead and take it down. Nice. But for a long time I had to do that. And I, I got to where I was wasting two, two pinkies a week on it because I'd lay one in its cage overnight, see if it ate. And then when it didn't, I thought another one the next morning and feed it. And uh, now it's gotten to though, finally in like the last three weeks, it's gotten to where the pinky's gone every morning when I come back. So that's good. I'm not over that. That's good. Who'd you get them from? Uh, them I got from Thomas Bailey. Ah, dude, Tom Bailey and I go way back, man. He used to live around the corner from me. Yeah, I ordered them from Tom Bailey, and uh, yeah, yeah. He moved up to Kentucky, so he was. He did. He was in the state, so he sent them to me. And he said he had been breeding them for several years. Oh yeah, man, dude. Tom's had those gold phase ones for oof, at, at least fifteen years, 10, 10, 15 years, and he was one of the only guys doing those gold phases for a while. And uh, that was one of those things where it's like, I just like the species, so I'm just going to have them and breed them. And he was killing it. So, dude, his, yeah. his line is is gorgeous and healthy, and I'm glad you got him from Tom. It's good yeah. stuff, man. That's a really cool, really cool species, too, that I've, I've had opportunities to get my hands on, and just the timing was never, never great. Yeah, I mean, really, the only time, the only other times I've seen them, I mean, I know there's some people out there working with them, but most of the time when I've seen them, they were coming in wild call, and I, I just, I, I kind of put them in the same bucket that I put paradise snakes and you know some of those other things that yeah. I'm like, yeah. that that's cool, but what's the chances I'll ever get it to eating? And then, uh, you know, actually the CCR episode come out, and I forgot who they were interviewing that breeds them, but. He was talking about how easy they were to get started on mice 
once they once you got them to eating it a few times and uh that really i was like all right that's cool i, I want to try some so i got yeah. a pair of them and i like them yeah man that's good stuff man that's great small world right absolutely that's cool man especially in the herpeticulture world it, it oh, gets yeah. small. <laughs> yeah oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> i'm gonna show these pictures that dustin sent me yesterday yeah, let's get into some of the farm stuff. The tobacco stuff. Tobacco. See, this I just found interesting in comparison to what we see with, like, cigar tobacco. Right. Because those leaves look, like, way waxier, and the plants themselves look just different. Yeah, I feel like they're larger, too, right? Yeah, that year was a... That was particularly the reason why we took a picture was that was a particularly a really good heavy year. Uh, what you're looking for with smokeless tobacco is people say the average is about 4,000 pounds per acre. And uh, what that is, is basically of just the leaves because that's all you sell at the at the tobacco floor is the leaves. Uh, so that was a, in particular a really good year. And I think that year we wound up breaking like 4,700 pounds per acre. So I mean, wow. there was just some, there's some really monstrous leaves uh, in that, that year, that particular year. Wow. That's awesome. And then this I thought was interesting. So if you've ever had Drew Estate, they have a cigar line called the Kentucky Fire Cured. And it is basically they do this with that with that tobacco which is it's it's fire cured so it has a very smoky barbecue type flavor to it oh yeah some people like it some people don't i'm on the fence about it i've had them in the past and i feel like they're not as good as they used to be i don't it could just be me but they uh sort of rack them up like this and typically down with, with cigar tobacco down south, like they do this same thing, but they have them in these giant barns, basically. And it's not fire cured. It's like air cured for, you know, however long, depending on what the what the leaf is being used for. Um, so they'll just have like stories of of these tobacco leaves wow. sort of set on these poles, which we'll go back to this in a second. Kind of like this, but inside just racked mm -hmm. up. And uh so, so Dustin, how tall is that ceiling that we're looking at? That is probably about six foot, five and a half to six foot to the end of the teeth, to the end of the tips of the leaves. But okay. that is four, it's four tiers high. Oh, wow. So the tobacco stacked up on the tobacco sticks. You spike them on the tobacco stick and then you lay them on the rafters and it goes up four tiers high. And the thing about tobacco that I think a lot of people doesn't don't understand is everything that's done in a tobacco field just about is done by hand. Uh, I mean, yeah. you can't yeah. make machinery in there because you'll just tear it up. And I was telling Justin, uh, I, you know, I've laid brick. I've done a little bit of uh, floor laying and roofing and that kind of stuff. And a tobacco field is by far the most labor intensive hard work I've ever done. And I, wow. um, but that the firing process uh, this barn, I think, was one of our newer barns, so it was 10. But there's a whole lot of barns that are still being fired in this part of the country that are literally log barns that might be 100 years old. Wow. Uh, so I was telling Justin, there's a real art to that, is uh, 
you'll take those hardwood slabs and lay them. That's called a windrow. Uh, so you lay them in rows like that, and then you put the sawdust on top so they burn more like a cigarette. They don't flame. They just kind of smoke and ember yeah. down uh, because you can't have open flame because what you'll do is you'll light these fires, you'll let them get burnt down into where they're coals, and then you shut up the doors and you leave. And it's got to burn the rest of the way out, which could take, you know, two, three, four days to burn out. And uh, you'll go in every now and then and check. But I was telling Justin, if you get it too hot, the leaves will start slipping off the stalk and uh. fall to the bottom. And that will cause your barn to catch on fire. And if you have it too cold, then the leaves will start rotting and breaking and they'll fall to the bottom and that'll catch your barn on fire. So there's just a sweet spot there for temperature and how you set it up to keep from losing the entire barn by fire. And I mean, every year there's several farmers around that lose a barn because something happened and, you know, you can't sit there and watch it the whole time because like my dad on a good year, he'd have 11 or 12 of these barns going at one time. Wow. So wow. you have to put them in, shut it up and leave it. And like I was saying, that's a windrow orientation where it's just rows of uh, slabs with sawdust. And some people would also do what's called a bed. And you usually would want to do a bed when you wanted the barn to get hotter. Like if the leaves were starting to rot, it was starting to slip, and you wanted to get a lot of heat really quick, you'd lay the slabs in rows like that, and then you'd crisscross them. And then you'd go in and dump the sawdust on them, and you'd set fires like in the middle and on all four corners so it'd burn in and out at the same time to really raise the heat and the smoke in there to try to cure it out and dry it out. Wow. Let me just paint a picture for the people listening and not watching this. So the photo we're looking at is, is essentially a, a, a barn in a long hallway, basically. And the tobacco leaves are hung from the ceiling in, in tiers. And you see the leaves just dangling from the ceiling. And then on the floor is kind of like um, uh, lands and grooves almost with, with flame and heat on the ground making that heat rise to get to the leaves that are hanging from the ceiling. So wh what's the propellant that they're using? It's just sawdust. It's just sawdust. Uh, sometimes wow. we would have to start the fires with a little bit of charcoal lighter fluid or something like that. But whenever you would, if you'd have to start the fires like that, you had to leave both doors open. That's probably the reason why both doors are open like that. That way you get all those fumes in a crosswind getting out because all you want the flavor on the tobacco is just the wood. Yeah. So now I see little, little flames in the picture. Is that just, it's just the slow creep of the, of the flame going through the sawdust. That was a uh, newly started fires. We had just oh, okay. went through with like little pieces of bark, uh, wiped it, raked out the sawdust and just started the fires. And that's me just taking a picture. Cause we was just sitting there and waiting for them to actually start turning more into coals and die down the flames that way we could close up the barn and leave it yeah that's awesome man super cool you never see photos like this it's incredible <clears throat> but yeah those barns uh i have a one of my kind of i guess standoffness to uh keeping some arachnids is i know that you know uh arachnid venom can be similar to some insect venom and uh that bar those barns like that i'm certain is the reason why i'm allergic to wasps because you only open them up every fall and when you open them up and you climb the tiers just about every new barn you opened you was going to get stung at some point before 
the day was over with and I got stung so many times. I actually developed a allergic reaction to it. I've never had to go into anaphylaxis, but it's going that way. If, if I yeah. get stung, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. Damn. So what, what do we got here, Smitty? What are we looking at? You muted. Justin, you're muted. Is he frozen? No, I'm not. I was coughing. Okay. Yesterday. Oh, it's fine. Yeah, so this is just another sort of example of something similar. Nice. I need to find another. Let me see. There's a really good example of, of how they cure them. In, when they're like for cigars uh, with the same sort of buildings, but not fire cured necessarily, just regular cured. One of my neighbors, uh, he had a bunch of air cured tobacco and he actually wound up renting out what used to be hog barns. In my county, they passed an ordinance saying that you could not have hog barns anymore. So, you know, the hog barns, you can imagine they're kind of like the chicken houses. They're really long and thin. And uh, he rented out a bunch of them because they had rafters that would fit tobacco sticks in it. And he could open up both sides and they even had fans hooked up where he could turn them on every now and then just to off gas the tobacco. And he had uh, that barn, that hog barn filled full of air cured tobacco. That's cool. Let's see here. Yeah, so this is like air curing. Wow. Those are all just on uh, on sticks, like like Dustin was saying, sort of draped over. And then those are laid across, I guess, sort of uh, like rafter-type deals that go up. Now, are those, I can't see, are those actually on the stock, or are they just the leaves bundled and uh, they should that. still be on the stock. Okay. That's what I was wondering. I didn't know with cigar tobacco how that was done because I knew that sometimes Burley, they would just bundle the leaves and like wire tie them. And yeah. Them. Yeah. But I didn't know with uh, cigars if they left them on the stock or not. Yeah. Most of them, I believe they do. Yeah. I feel like there's still a bunch of oils that are still flowing and moving and, and, vessels contracting expanding inside the stock and i think they want to harness as much of that for as long as possible i think yeah so here's curing barns here's a good example so these oh, wow. cross sticks like these logs you're seeing those are what they'll drape the leaves over and it just goes up and i'm That's not sure cool. exactly if it's depending on like what they're going for, what the leaf is, like which part of the cigar they're using it for, if it dictates how high up it goes or not. Um, but yeah, it gets, uh, gets pretty hot in there. Wow, man. Look at that. But again, all manual labor, like people, there's no machines or like lifts going up there, putting this it's dudes climbing up there. Yeah. And, going up there and checking on them and making sure they're where they need to be and I don't even know what that is it's probably just some string they use to tie it together probably seagrass string that's what mm -hmm. uh, 
That's what most of the bales and stuff would be used, would be seagrass string. I, okay. I don't know why the reason for that is, but that's what the tobacco companies most of the time want you to use. Yeah, see, these don't look like they're on the stalk. These look like they're draped over. Yeah. Yeah, so now just what we're looking at is a, a big open barn with hundreds of wooden beams that just go across the barn from left to right and just thousands of plant leaves draped over them and the different stages of the leaves curing. Some of them are bright neon green. Some of them are dark, dark brown. And just the, the, the people laboring <laughs> very sweatily, <laughs> as I may say, and climbing these rafters to hang these leaves. It's incredible. I mean, huge facilities, huge barns. I mean, easily the size of a high school gymnasium minimum. Wow. Yeah, that's wild. Gorgeous countryside. So, and then, uh, with the cutting process, something that is really interesting about tobacco, and one of the reasons why working in the tobacco field can be dangerous is uh, I don't know if y'all have ever been around green tobacco, but it almost has like a gum to it. Uh, yeah, I've it, heard. They call it tobacco gum. It's sticky, but it's not like glue sticky. It's just like it sticks to you and it gets on you. And you got to think uh, where we're at in Western Kentucky uh, in August, which is usually the time that you're cutting tobacco, which is by far the hardest manual part of the patch. Um, it is, you know, 100 degree heat indexes and 98% humidity. Uh, we're right in between the Mississippi River and Kentucky Lake. Really high humidity, really high heat indexes. You're in the middle of the field and that gum will get on your skin and it'll get on it to the point that it actually blocks up your sweat pores. So you can you can stop sweating where you're not covered wow. with clothing. And that's why a lot of times you'll see people working in a tobacco patch with thin, long sleeve shirts because then the gum gets on the shirt instead of on your skin and blocks it up. But uh, it, you, you run a really high chance of getting either heat exhaustion or heat stroke because the gum blocks up your, your sweat pores and mm -hmm. makes it harder for you to sweat. That mm -hmm. and you can also take in nicotine through your skin if it's yeah. wet and get nicotine poisoning. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's wild. I never thought of that. It's a powerful plant, man. And yeah. you'll get really sick if you get nicotine poisoning. And uh, it's kind of funny because, you know, growing up in it, we didn't think about that, you know, especially in the nineties, you know, I was seven, eight years old out there topping and rolling tobacco with the rest of them. And uh, so I probably developed a nicotine addiction before I hit double digits, but <laughs> just being in the field. <laughs> wow. So what made the, so your family was t tobacco farmers for uh, smokeless tobacco. Was that, was there a reason for that? Or was it just like the trend of the time or what? It's, I think it has more to do with geographical area. For whatever reason, uh, Callaway County and Graves County, I, I don't know if this figure is still accurate, but at one point I'd heard that between Callaway County and Graves County, these two counties in Western Kentucky produce like 92% of the snuff for the U.S. Oh, wow. uh, it's because... I guess it's because of our, we're in what's called the black patch. When you turn over the soil out here, it's just like really dark soil. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess it has to do with the soil structure and the, and the, us having the dark firing history. 
to have smokeless tobacco. Cause like all over Kentucky, there's tobacco, but the farther you go East, you get like barley and it's all. Right. And what we actually have is a plant. It's Justin probably knows this plant better than I do. Uh, my dad always called it narrow leaf Maduro. I don't know if it's actually Maduro or if it's actually Maduro, but it's narrow leaf Maduro. And uh, that's that darker, the real dark green, almost mm -hmm. army green colored tobacco. When you drive by a tobacco patch and you see the real light green, almost yellow, that's usually burley. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm not sure about, about the darker one. Because um, a lot of, I mean, as far as like tobacco that's grown in the States for cigars, um, Connecticut, the Connecticut River Valley is kind of one of the the main ones. Um, just because Connecticut, that, that region in particular is a lot like Ecuador and other parts where it's just naturally overcast, you know, a good bit of the year. And it, it makes it good for more or less shade grown tobacco. Um, <clears throat> but then Florida, Florida has started using some for cigars, but for the most part, anywhere else in the U S it's going to be for, for smokeless tobacco, cigarette tobacco, or like pipe tobacco. And I know dad, dad got approached by some company out of Nashville that was, uh, doing cigar tobacco. And I think he tried it for one year, like taking some of the leaf. I know that he made a cutter, a, a cutter for, to cut the stems off. Uh, but he made it out of a piece of, oil pipe and a sharpened blade because you know, <laughs> but that's great. Uh, he had it for one year and he just decided that it wasn't for him even though it fetched a higher price per pound it wasn't worth the extra yeah. the extra step when we're already producing for we are we're already set up for the smokeless mm -hmm. so yeah. it wasn't worth the extra step to do that versus doing it for the smokeless so when you guys sell the cured leaf are you guys doing anything in preparation for distribution? Like, are you guys like, do you guys grind it? Do you guys chop it? Or are you just selling whole leaf cured leaf? We don't grind or chop. We sell the, the full leaf, but what we have to do is it's, it's called stripping tobacco. Uh, you take it all down from that barn and then you do what's called getting it in order, which uh, we had a big plastic sheet room that we had pulled the whole wagon in and you turn on a steamer and the steamer, we had a metal pipe that would go underneath the wagon and it steamed the tobacco for like 10 minutes. And uh, that dried tobacco that had been fire cured would retain a whole lot of moisture. Yeah. So it would be pliable. And then uh, you'd lay it, you'd bring it all in a heated barn because we're usually doing this in like November and December. Uh, picking it all off the, of the stalk and classing it by different classes on how good the leaf is. Wow. Uh, okay. They do that with cigars too? Yeah. Typically... There was, there used to be uh, three classes. There used to be leaf, seconds, and lugs. And then before we quit, uh, all of U.S. Smokeless just had two classes, which was just leaf and lugs. And then they had trash too. But uh, the leaf and the lugs, you would take, typically, usually it was the first, like top third of the tobacco plant would be the leaf. Because the leaves toward the top of the tobacco plant would be usually less roughed up. You know, they hadn't been drugged in the mud. They didn't have mud on them. They they usually had less holes because they'd been on the plant less time to be, get attacked by pests or anything. So usually about the top third would be leaf. And you would put it in what would, we'd call a flake box. And then you'd take the other, half, the other bottom half and put it in another flake box. And that would be leaf and lug. And in those flake boxes, they're basically just plywood boxes that was about that was covered on two ends and then uh, they were about five inches wide. 
and you just stuff as much as you possibly could into that plywood box and put your knee on it and everything wow. just to get it as compact as you could. And then you pull it out in flakes and you'd stack it up on the, they called them tobacco heads or the baskets that we'd actually take to the cell. And then we'd stack those in an orientation so that they get stacked up. That's crazy. Trailer and take them. That's wild, man. So in one of those, all right. So in that, that fire cure barn we saw, Mm-hmm. one one row one tier how many boxes would that be ballpark 100? probably, probably uh, flight boxes or big boxes both <laughs> uh big boxes, ballpark man, man yeah big boxes would probably be about about 40 okay big boxes and probably every flight would have According to how heavy the tobacco was, between 150 and 200 flakes per box. Wow. That's wild, man. Because you. And it's all by hand. That's crazy. It's all by hand. Just Uh, pitching it like bales of hay on a wagon, man. That's wild. Yeah. Even the planting of the tobacco, it's not like you can just go through and plant seeds. You you start seedlings on a waterbed most of the time now. And then they, they actually take a push mower and like run across the top of them to strengthen up the plant. Because yep. if you didn't, the plant would just be really spindly. And then uh, the setter is what we called it. It was a machine. It looked like it comes straight out of the 1920s that you pulled behind a tractor and uh, you would set four people on the setter and you'd have to pull the plants out of the out of the trays and then these little fingers would come by and you'd have to lay the tobacco in the finger in the right orientation. And then it'd take it down and they'd set it in the ground. Wow. And so you had to even ride the setter to plant it all. That's great. My, my dad at one point we would, you know, the, between him and the farmers around us that he helped on, he was a farm manager. They had probably 10,000 acres of row crops, soybean and corn. And by far, that was a drop in the bucket compared to the 50 acres of dart fire that we had. Wow. Crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, man. All that, all that yeah. soybean being in corn, man, all, you, you, you sell that off to feed the livestock, man. That's, that's yeah. People you, don't realize how much space. You need. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Combine tractor. It's pretty <laughs> much all by machine. You're loading the seed. That's about it. But with tobacco, 90% of it is not, you can't do by machine. Yeah. Yeah, that's nuts, man. Yeah, when I was when I was a kid, we had uh, about fifty acres of corn and about twenty acres of soybean, and we had about a hundred acres that was all horse paddock. And my grandfather would pay a guy to combine the corn, and then I guess he used, I guess he used the leaf and stalk for something, and he would keep that, and then he would mash all the corn for us to do um to do just like cow corn mm-hmm. and uh because we had like i don't know 20 head of herefordshire nothing crazy and then the soybean we would just uh pay a guy to to uh, let me rephrase that we would have a guy harvest it and plow it for us and then keep like 20 percent. and it was nothing man it, it's just it's just it's crazy how much space you need for those row crop for the little amount that is worth it if that makes any sense yeah yeah, definitely. And my dad, or not my dad, my granddad raised uh, Charlotte cattle. So uh, he had, I had some experience with the Charlotte cattle and the hayfield through that too. But yeah. Yeah, man, that's wild. 
So what are we yeah, looking so at here, this Justin? Is, this is how they ferment cigar tobacco typically. They put them in these giant piles called pilones. And I, I guess it's similar to sort of what Dustin was talking about. Uh, you know, just instead of it being put in a box, they put them in these giant, like, I, I don't know how it's, I, I forget the, the weight they said that some of these pilones will weigh. But uh, they leave them in these and they ferment them in a, in a specialized area that is, you know, high heat, high humidity. Um, how big is that? What's it like 20 foot by 20 foot? Uh, is it I'm bigger? Not even, couldn't even tell you. It might even be bigger than that, but here's another. Wow. That's oh, interesting wow. because that tobacco they have, uh, they're doing, uh, it's a little different than the flake that we was doing at the end. It looked like it was hand tied. And if you look up a, a hand tied tobacco bundle, uh, people would, people would get really in depth about how they, how pretty their hand ties were. Mm -hmm. I remember, I remember when that was still a thing when we still done that. And later on, they had us just doing the flakes because it's, it's quicker. But my grandmother used to always brag about how pretty her hand ties was. So they'd take a bundle <laughs> of leaves and put them together and then take the leaf itself and wrap around the outside and tuck it through and wrap it around so that you had this really pretty hand tie. That's awesome. And it looks like those piles of the cigar tobacco, they were all hand-tied bundles. Yeah, That's it's crazy. just, man, it's funny how it's just like the smallest stuff. And it just goes to show you, man, like of all the crops that we cultivate, so few are still an art form, you know? Yeah. And it's just like all the and like doesn't matter if it's the smokeless if it's if it's pipe tobacco if it's cigars like it's all an art form man yeah, yeah every, see all those are hand tied. oh wow yeah look at that see the knobs at the end where all the leaves are bundled together yeah. that's a hand tie yep yeah they even wrap some of them see them in the background there you know an extended period of time until they're till they're right and this say twenty five hundred to four thousand pounds. Wow, is a, is a pilone. Wow, yeah, it's crazy. But that's to kind of give you reference for size there. I mean, it's the size of a sedan, more or less. Yeah, yeah. And then. They inspect them as they go to see where they're at, kind of determine how it goes from there. And then they sort, like Dustin was saying. Um, I know for like wrappers and stuff, they try to get them to match color wise as best as they can. So there's consistency there. I think some companies worry about that more than others. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, everything like this is what separates cigars from, from every other tobacco product in particular at least in comparison to like cigarettes is like it's 100% handmade there's no additives or anything like that it's 100% natural and I'm not saying anybody should run out and go start smoking but there is a difference <laughs> between premium cigars and cigarettes how they can yeah. even call cigarette tobacco tobacco by the time they're done with it with all the stuff they add to it is uh yeah it's crazy but that's a chevette chevetta which is what the, the little knife they use to cut for for wrapping and it's kind of the same thing with the with the smokeless tobacco too, because you know, my whole life we'd haul it off to the 
U.S. smokeless factory, and like as we're unloading it, they're running it through a grinder. They're grinding it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure that for like some of the higher end snuffs, like uh, Sco, Copenhagen, that kind of stuff, a, a lot of what differentiates that is what class of leaf it goes in it and also how long it ferments. But I'm pretty sure they right. ferment them like barrels, like whiskey almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Which a handful of companies do that as well. Perdomo has their barrel aged stuff, which he literally has just barrels full of, of tobacco. And they're, um, there's a couple brands that have done like a sherry cast aged. And so there's, there's definitely different ways people do it depending on what they're, what they're going for. But like if you ever watch some of these people roll cigars, like people think it's just as easy as bundling leaves together and rolling them. Like it's way more involved. Uh, some companies even do like they draw test all their cigars to make sure there's good airflow through them. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's a, it's a process. And a lot of times too, like they'll put them together in these, they're, they're half wheels, like a big bundle of, of cigars and they'll weigh them and they can tell if there's like imperfections in that group by the weight. Wow. Which is pretty interesting. You know, rolling, rolling yeah. cigars. I, I have a healthy respect for just from what I was telling y'all earlier about the hand tying. Cause I mean that when you very first try to learn how to do that, you're going to rip a hundred leaves trying to do yeah. it. Yeah. So the fact that they can roll a cigar as tightly and as precisely as they do is just nothing short of incredible having experience with those leaves. Did you guys have a lot of, uh, at least in the, the tobacco side of things, was there still a lot of like rodents and pests and things like that, that you would. Not really. Would... Not really. Not like toy. Yeah. yeah. We didn't have many rodent problems for whatever reason, the rodents, I, I don't know if they just didn't like the tobacco or what, but uh, where most of our pest problems come from was during the actual growing process, like uh, the hornworms, you know, the same yeah. hornworms that we feed bearded dragons, uh, they would they would make short work of a tobacco patch. Uh, wow. They If you got them in your tobacco patch, you're in trouble. And also grasshoppers. Uh, grasshoppers and hornworms both were, were big pests to have on the tobacco patch. Did you ever encounter um, mammals that were for lack of a better word addicted to nicotine because i've heard of like i've heard of farmers who have like their own tobacco patch just for like a hobby and what they'll do is they'll put some of the clippings in their compost heap whatever and all of a sudden now they got deer literally salivating like ah when are you gonna cut that plant down and and because the local wildlife is just hooked on nicotine (laughs) i never did one of my one of my dad's neighbors uh he was losing a whole lot of leaves and his tobacco patch, the bottom leaves. And he took the leaf to the, our local ASCS office, which is like our local agriculture office. And the ASCS office told him that it was rabbits that had gotten a taste for tobacco. Really? And yeah. And I don't know how much truth there was in it, but me and my dad made fun of him and we found a seven foot Easter bunny at Walmart and blew it up and set it in his patch. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, he, he did, he did report the ASS office said that it was rabbits that had gotten a taste for his tobacco. And I, I don't remember seeing if there was any damage from mammals, it wasn't significant enough for us to notice. 
but it was not uncommon for us to run rabbits out of the field just because the leaves are so big and so broad and in a hot day and underneath the tobacco, it was relatively cool because that ground stayed shaded all the time once the leaves got some size upon them. So like I said, it was just, it was a, it was a wonderland for all sorts of different wildlife uh, down at the ground level in a tobacco patch. Wow. So this, this video you're playing, Justin is fantastic. Yeah. Just to kind of give you an idea of, like if if that they're rolling torpedoes, so that that should mean that this roller in particular is one of their higher tier ones because they are sort of like rated on a scale in terms of like abilities. And torpedoes typically are are rolled by the the better of the factory rollers. So, but yeah, I mean that's the like you can see the whole thing's done by hand. There's like no machines doing it. And even then, like you're looking at, so like that's a wrapper that she's cutting right now to wrap the filler and binder. And they're not even using like the entire leaf. Like they're really only using, you know, maybe half of that. Mm -hmm. And then she checks the ring gauge to make sure it's where it needs to be. And like the, just, you see them on the shelves, man. And like the fact that they can even do this so consistently to where you can open box after box after box and they're all going to look identical and they're all going to look just, rolled perfectly you know it's it's crazy like it is not nearly as easy as it looks well i mean like i said just from knowing how fragile that leaf is when she was just taking her hand and spreading it out flat i i would almost bet that nobody watching this right now would be able to do it without ripping it yeah i wouldn't even try and she's rubbing it with like pectin is typically what they use to sort of glue the leaves so to speak and then she just cuts the end. And I mean, look at that. Like, it's a whole stack of cigars that are just perfectly rolled. Uniformly symmetrical. Yep. Yep. Same ring that's gauge and everything. And then that's a half wheel. I was talking about that right there. Oh, wow. And so that they'll weigh, some companies weigh them. And if their their weight's off, then they'll know that there's, you know, there's something wrong with, with at least some of the cigars in there, or maybe only a couple of them, but. pretty wild Back to phil's point earlier yeah tobacco is one crop where you do have that almost an art to it and you have it from nearly the beginning of the growing process all the way up till then because uh you know i was telling justin the whole firing process there is an art to that and the reason why i say that is because I couldn't sit here and explain to you what to look for and whether I need to raise the temperature or not. Right. I, I could probably give you some outlines, but there is, there's just some things after seeing so many seasons and so many barns being fired that I would walk into a barn and be like, okay, no, this barn needs to go hotter or yeah. no, we need to cool it off or we need a cold smoke on this one. It, it doesn't need any heat. We just need smoke. And just knowing how to set, knowing what that barn needs to get it the rest of the way cured out by fire cured is there's an art to that. And that, you know, it's something that was, that was kind of told to me, taught to me by my dad, but that's, it wasn't taught. It wasn't like a, taught. It's just something you, yeah. Pick, yeah. it's up just on. watching yeah. him doing it so yeah. long that you pick up on all the different nuances and intricacies of what it needs. Yeah, man. It's acquired like knowledge. Into- Walking into your room and just knowing that something's yeah off with our animals yeah. going back to, to herps, you know, it's yeah. like you notice like 
uh you know good example the rhinos like my younger female was feeding everything the other day and i noticed the younger female wasn't out and she was sort of tucked back in the corner so i was like she must be in a shed cycle woke up this morning sure enough there was a shed like you pick up on the small things like the inconsistencies and in, in from baseline behavior in, in these animals and stuff like that and again it's not something you could really like explain to someone right like i when you're getting down to individual animals in particular it's like you can tell people okay you know keep an eye out for x y and z but it's like with that rhino in particular like she's always out they're always out all of them mm -hmm. so when one's disappeared and i don't see it for a couple of days i'm like it's got to be in a shed cycle um yeah and the exact opposite for another one because if right. it's but if one snake's constant always in its hide and then it's out that day uh, oh, I better check the temperature. Is the hot side too hot? Because it's not in that high that it's always in. Yeah. Yep. Great point, man. Lisa asked what green tobacco smells like, which I do not know. Yeah. What does green tobacco smell like? <sighs> wow. Green it's, tobacco. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 a very it's a very unique smell. Both the green tobacco smell and the and the smell of tobacco being cured. You know, the candles have tried to imitate that. I've, I've seen candles that's like tobacco barn. Yeah. Uh, they can't imitate I guarantee it. you that's not what they smell like. No. And, uh, but it is, it, green tobacco does have a very, it's a very fresh scent. Kind of fresh. It doesn't smell anything like this, but fresh in the same way that I would think of like pine. Okay. Like it, it's a it's a it's a pretty strong scent. And yeah. It's a very fresh scent. It doesn't smell anything like pine, but it kind of reminds me of like the freshness of pine. It's a very mm -hmm. fresh scent. Uh, and then does it, uh, does it have a sweetness like alfalfa? Sort of, not quite that sweet though. It it okay. it it's 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 just a very it's a very fresh green scent, but it is completely on a different spectrum of what it smells like than anything else I can think yeah, of. Yeah. So you're not, it's not going to hit you in the face like a fresh mowed lawn, but no. it has that, it has that green smell. So to speak. yes. And okay. when you walk into a barn and it's full of green tobacco, then it will hit you in the face. The rest of the, <laughs> yeah. time, the, rest yeah. of the time it really doesn't, but uh, like the tobacco, the fire tobacco, you would think it would just smell like wood, like hardwood burning but it doesn't, it mixes the hardwood with all the off gas that's mm -hmm. coming off of the green tobacco. And it, it has a completely different smell too. And now that smell does smell very sweet. Awesome. Super cool, man. Super cool. I'm so glad you came on tonight, man. This is great. I enjoyed it, man. This is great. Yeah. I mean, talking about like green tobaccos, I know I've mentioned candela wrappers before, which, um, you don't see terribly often in cigars, at least. Uh, I don't think they've ever been particularly popular, but if you ever see a cigar with like a green wrapper, that's a Candela wrapper. And basically that just hasn't been fermented like the other ones have. It's it's probably as close to like tobacco as is, if that makes I sense. Like, I feel like they use them more so in like a candy cane wrapper just for aesthetics. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I mean, it has a very it, flavor wise. It's definitely a sort of an acquired taste because it is very grassy. It has a very grassy, like hay like flavor to it that some people aren't into. Some people like um, I find that there's some companies that can pull off a Candela blend really well. And then a lot of the other ones, it's just kind of, you know, it tastes like a. Yeah, I'm not into it. A fresh cigar that probably just needs to sit for a long time. But it, that's just how it's supposed to be. 
yeah um you know but Justin, what kind of cigar is it i don't even know a cigar might be a stretch but i i know i've bought one one time just because it was fire cured but it's like a i think it's like a french design and it's looks like a almost a really thin mini torpedo and the idea is supposed to be like to cut them in half have you ever seen those uh there's a couple of sizes like um those ones those those kfc's i gave you phil yeah those really thin ones i forget those what are size those super were. lanceros well, this was a this was a dark fired tobacco, and I bought one of them one time just out of a humidor from a cigar shop, mainly just out of uh, curiosity. Yeah. But when I opened it up, it did smell just like the fully cured dark fired tobacco. Like it was probably I, a Kentucky. Yeah, fire. yeah, almost. KFC. Yeah, I can almost guarantee it was a, a KFC Lancero, the Kentucky Fire Court, Kentucky fired from Drew Estate in a Lancero, and it's like a gigantic cigarette yeah. yeah yeah that's kind of what that's kind of what i was picturing was yeah it's like a thick cigarette but yeah it really did smell very very similar to like after you've stripped the tobacco and gotten it out of the barn what our stripping shed smelled like yeah interesting yeah, they're they're really the only people that i know of that are doing anything with that sort of kentucky fire cured type style with cigars um, yeah I, I love those ones you gave me man those those lanceros yeah, are awesome. Yeah. I, think, I think you just strong flavor. <laughs> I think Justin yeah. just smoked too many of them. You know what I mean? Like it just it got yeah, to him after I a while. Got, like a, I got a lot of them, and it got to the point where I was just like, yeah, it was too much. I don't know. I early on when I was getting into cigars, I smoked a good bit of them, and I liked them. And I don't like I said. I think it's probably more so my palate changing over time, but just the, over time as I smoked them, I just wasn't as into them as I used to be, and I just wish that that smoky flavor was a little more subtle. Like overall, I find that as I'm getting older, like I like more subtlety in the flavors of, of some cigars, depending on, you know, if it's sweetness or um, like those acids, you know, those are way too sweet for me at this point. Like the, the Dunbarton tobacco and trust uh, sober Mesa brulees are like the perfect amount of sweetness. Like it's, it's very subtle. It's right there. It's enough for you to notice, but it's not over. It's not, hijacking the the flavor of everything if that if that makes sense um and those kfcs are kind of the same way i mean they it is like every now and then i'll get a i'll get a hankering for one and i'll I'll have to grab one um but i don't know yeah i smoke them now and it's just it's it's just so upfront you know i was looking um i know my father had the um lotier and there was a super long Lancero that had a smokiness to it, but I can't, I don't think they produce it anymore, but it was part of that La Tierre, you know, Selection Special, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And uh, I had a few of those and those were really good, but I was on a Lancero kick for a while. So, yeah. yeah. But what other species were you seeing out there besides hognose? Which we have to talk to, do we have to talk about, by the way, so. Lots of copperheads. I mean, every time you'd get into a slab pile, you know, that was just perfect habitat for copperheads. Lots of copperheads, uh, lots of gray rat snakes, uh, lots of caliber constrictors, you know, black racers. Um, those were probably the most commonly seen. Uh, some people would claim to see a lot of eastern milk snakes. I've I seen them a couple of times, but where I was at, there wasn't a whole lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
there was a few in my county that was my county is one of the few places that you can find them in Kentucky because of us being in the south corner next to the lakes and just having the right habitat. But the, I never seen uh, one was the pygmy rattlesnake. I've looked for 15 years for a pygmy. I still have not found a pygmy, uh, at least not a Kentucky pygmy. Uh, uh, the Kentucky pine snake, it's one of the few places in Kentucky down there where they're pretty common. You can you can find them on uh, iNaturalist and stuff that really close to where I grew up, uh, people having pictures of them. And uh, timber rattlesnake. I never seen a timber, uh, not in Kentucky. I've seen them over in Illinois, uh, just mm -hmm. north of me, but I've never actually seen one in Kentucky. Wow. Uh, but, yeah, there's uh, gray rat snake, cleaver constrictor, Lots of Nerodia, and I'll be honest, I'm terrible at telling the different subspecies of Nerodia, especially because where we live have a bunch of different subspecies of Nerodia. They all look the same. <laughs> I, yeah, except for the copper belly. The copper belly is, I know yeah. that it's protected. That's the only one that I can tell with, I think, somewhat preciseness, yeah. but the, the rest of them, uh, most of them look the same. Um you know, they all, as they just get older, they just get darker, and that's it. And uh, <laughs> But there's lots of Nerodia. Uh, yeah, lot, the, the main ones were Eastern Milk Snakes, uh, Black King Snakes, Black Racers, and Copperheads. And like I said, where I live, it is, Copperheads is the most common snake you find when you're looking for snakes. Um, now, those pygmies you speak of, are they... Militarius militarius, or are they uh, uh, strekeri? Uh, I think they're Cistrus malarius. Okay, that's the that's the that's the only that's the only explanation I can find online. Yeah, they don't they don't they don't. It's probably like an integrate zone or something where it's like Carolina colors meets Western colors. I'm sure it might be because I mean, like I said, where are pygmy? If you look at the pygmy map. It's like it literally it goes across Middle Tennessee, and then you'll see one little finger that just barely reaches up into Kentucky, and it follows the Tennessee River up around Kentucky Lakes area. Wow, that's super cool. So it's like the very northernmost point for pygmies, and then you don't get into the like the Masagas, some of the Masagas, until you get up into Illinois. And mm -hmm. uh, one of my buddies actually sent me a picture earlier this year. He was out morel hunting and he's like, what is this? And at first glance, I thought it was a cotton mouth because he just sent me a close up of the head that had that eye band. I'm like, something don't look right about that though. And he sent me more pictures and it wound up being an Eastern Masaga. And he had, I had gave him uh, Scott Ballard with the Illinois DNR's uh, contact information so that he could turn it in. Cause that's a, uh, that's about as rare as hitting the lottery. It, yeah. 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 there's like less than 300 left in the state of illinois really wow. yeah and he he saw one a young one too just had a two it looked like it'd been through two shed cycles because it just had two buttons and the end button was still pointed so a very young uh eastern masaga that's crazy man and like it's always the mushroom guys that find the cool right. shit <laughs> yeah it's, like... I, I, it's the harper's curse because I, it is I, I, I've had people send me pictures and be like, what's this? And it's a pygmy rattlesnake. And I'm like, I've looked for 15 years and I can't find one. And you just walked outside to look at your daisies. And there yeah, was one. Go to check your mailbox and there it yeah. is. Yeah. 
Oh man. Well, it's like our, our friend who's uh he's a fish and wildlife guy for Florida, and uh he just had someone in his neighborhood app for his neighborhood be like, What snake is this? and like help me ID it. And it's just a giant indigo head coming out from underneath like a deck. It's like he's like he's like, Of course I'm at work, I'm not home, you know. So yeah. Now the one snake that I guess in the at least in the state of Kentucky is pretty hard to find but in my area is pretty common is the copper belly water snake the that's cool uh, the mm-hmm. copper belly neurodia i i see them we see them quite often and i know that they're protected in the state but they we see, do see them quite often does those that's were cool. those at some point some a subspecies of the yellow bellies or red bellies i think so is the their own thing is the subspecies is it the like I said, I'm terrible with Neurodia. Is that uh, is the yellow belly or red belly the plain belly water snake? I was going to say I thought that the coppers were Maybe part of the plain belly, and the red belly was totally different. I think the coppers are a subspecies of the plain belly, if I'm not mistaken, and I very well could be with Neurodia. Yeah, where's Montrose when you need him? I was going to say, where the hell is Chris when you need him? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, sure, Jake's going cool, to listen to this. He's going to be yelling in his in his of car. Of course, of course. So you'd mentioned earlier in the show about having two different phenotypes of corns. Can you like dive into that a little bit? I don't have two different phenotypes of corns, but oh, okay. I, want, I want to pick up the some of the Kentucky locality because well, no, that's that's what I meant. I meant Kentucky's yeah. got two different lo- phenotypes, right? Oh yes, uh, okay. Kentucky has the ones that are around Mammoth Cave, and then they have the ones that is a little farther northeastern. Uh, both of them are, I'm going to butcher this word, allopatric, geographically isolated. What's yeah. the word I'm looking for? I think that's right. Allopatric, right? Right. Something like that. But it's geographically isolated from the rest of the corn range. So uh, there is some, I've seen some phenomenal, really different looking corns that come from some of these Kentucky localities. So I'd really like to get my hands on those and work with them. Uh, just Kentucky has some very weird laws. Uh, you know, uh, I can't keep, I can't keep more than five of any supposed to be native species, but I know that it's not like the corns that you get from anywhere else is okay. But yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's wild collected or not, you're not supposed to keep more than five. So, uh, but I think, the laws are just so vague that it doesn't specify that you can't breed them yourself. Just like you can't obtain five from either the wild or from another breeder. So I, I, I've got to do some, get some hardcore answers on that before yeah. I start trying to go toward that project. But the way the law actually reads is that you can't obtain more than five from a breeder or from the wild, but it doesn't say anything about if you breed them yourself. And I don't know if that's on purpose or away from it. Yeah. But yes. There's those. There's the the one right in the center of Kentucky. That's the Mammoth Cave location. And I'm not real sure what they what they call the more northeastern location, what county that's in, or anything else. It is so crazy that they're so isolated in that northeastern spot. Yeah. You know, it's just it's obviously mountain ranges and whatnot, but. And that's literally the only place that you'll find them in Kentucky is those two spots. Wow, it's super red. Photo by Odd Pearson. Kidding, it's Todd. Todd Pearson. 
<laughs> I'm clicking the button for better pictures, damn it. Yeah, I know Will. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, man. Yeah, I it's love just that, that stripe that goes through the saddles. Yeah, it's just they're just different. And I mean, I don't even know really what about them makes them so different. It's just that that I guess geographically divergent population is just just has a different look to it. And I would like to get it and see what what you could do with it, kind of like uh, what they've done with the Okatees after line breeding them. I mean, I know sure. you can get away from that, but I'd like to see what else, what other little traits you might could uh, good juice up and mm. make it more. It needs castagna in it. <laughs> of course it does. Of course it does. Jesus. Justin. See, now they're just trying to make me have an aneurysm because the whole like red rat snake thing versus corn snake, they're just like, have you seen a red corn snake? <laughs> Let me see if it says what the other county is. Red River Gorge, Geologic Area. I want to say, don't quote me on this. I want to say it's uh, Mammoth Cave has two count, counties, with his, which is Edmondson and something else. And then I want to say, is the other one Jasper? This just says Mammoth Cave and surrounding counties, and then records also exist within the Red River Gorge, which yeah, is not, that's not up here. That's probably pretty close to the Red River Gorge. Is it? Okay. Yeah. They gave us, like, no counties or nothing. It's just dots. I know, uh, I know for a while, and that may have been before Kentucky, because, like, in 2005 is when Kentucky came in and made a bunch of sweeping – laws that affected herpeticulture but uh i know at one point will bird uh and he was i think he's the herpeticulture or the herpetology curator at the louisville zoo he was working with uh kentucky locality corn snakes and was breeding them and giving them to the local herp society and that kind of stuff i mean they have it listed here in northeast so well here's one from I obviously have the big screen open right now, but here's one from uh, iNaturalist that's just north of that whole Mammoth Cave area. Look at the darkness of this one. Darkness. Hold on a second. I'm trying to get it to cooperate, StreamYard. Yeah, that almost looks like it Ooh. might cross between a gray rat snake and our corn because that's one thing like that's yeah, that's one thing that's really bad about our gray rats is like, you know, a lot of gray rats are really pretty gray and black, but as you get more into like Western Kentucky, I don't know if it's an intergrade zone between the black rats or whatever, that whole complex is a mess, but we have like the most ugly pig turd brown gray rats ever were in Western Kentucky. Like they, they are not pretty to look at. They are just, they're just gray, brown rat snakes. So this is, uh, this is, off of a highway just south of the Mammoth Cave Park. And, and this is also iNaturalist, so you guys can find this yourselves. Yeah, I'm trying to pull up iNaturalist. Look right at now. this. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. It's got like the almost Tessera looking. And Smitty, you were, uh, you were having a fit over red rat snakes. Uh, guess what the locals call them in Kentucky? Do I even want to know? 
Probably can I, not. Can I guess? They, yep. call them, they call them chicken snakes? Red chicken snakes. That's red it. Chicken I snake. knew it. I knew it. I'll almost take that over red rat snake. Yeah, that's a red chicken snake, and the gray rat snake is the it's just a chicken snake. All right, so now here's one that's literally on the eastern border of Mammoth Cave National Park. And this thing is just super my, super dark. My keyboard's decided just to give up, so yeah. Those are also older animals, I think, too. So I think part of that's just age. Could very well be. And Scott said they, they did that just to fuck with me. It's entirely possible. <laughs> and he also said Todd. I know it was Todd, Scott. It was a joke. Yeah. Will Bird had a had a little video back a few years ago that he's like, I was looking for corn snakes, and we kept on asking people, you know, have you seen a corn snake? And all of them said no. And then we finally we showed a picture to some lady, and the lady's like, oh, a red chicken snake? Yeah, they're right down there. And he said he walked right to them. <laughs> Flip this board, and you, there'll be some under there. All right, now here's one from in Mammoth Cave Park. Obviously, it's on asphalt, but... Look at how the the dorsal, like, it's one giant, it's like saddles within a saddle. Like, look at this. Yeah. Oh. Whoa. I like that. sides to it. Like a San Diego gopher. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> I tried to pull up INAT and Chrome was having none of it, so. Oh, yeah. Well, we just, we did it. I mean, there's only. So there's probably so, like. Ten all together. Well, yeah. So I looked. I I first typed in Kentucky. So it only gives me re- observations from within the borders of Kentucky, and there's six, seven, eight observations. That's it for the whole state. So, yeah, and I know that they're they're very limited. It's just those two little populations, and it the map that Smitty was showing earlier. For the mammoth cave side it makes it look very big but from looking at like encounter data it looks like it's just on the border of two counties right there yeah. kind of close to the mammoth cave national park it's not that big of it it's not as big of an area as it looks like on that map right but, uh but yeah it's i know that i just think that since they were so isolated for however long that you might have some stuff pop out or some traits pop out that isn't in other places. And, you know, it's home state, kind of like yeah. these ladies island corns. You know, they, they probably mean more to him than any other corn snake because they're from right there. And Absolutely. Absolutely. I have I have two corns from Broward County, my county, and they just look like normal corns, but they're from my county, man. So of course, I'm, of course, I'm going to breed them. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the way to do it, man. So uh, let's talk hognose, man. Okay. So you're keeping Easterns or you're keeping Westerns? I'm keeping Westerns. I would okay. like to try to keep Easterns at some point. It's just uh, I started off with the Westerns because sure. they're a little bit easier to get switched over to rodents. <laughs> they're a lot easier. <laughs> I'm still not I'm still not sure that – I'm not sure I want to keep an Eastern and get it switched to rodents. But I'm also yeah. not sure I want to go through the trouble of keeping toads or frogs to feed the Eastern either. Well, see, I, I've I had a friend who lived in North Florida, and he uh, had a. Let me try and get my story right. So he had a neighbor kill a 
crazy Halloween Eastern hog on his property to basically say, oh, I killed this rattlesnake to save your family. I mean, we're talking Halloween, black and orange, like what you want. You know what I mean? And uh, I think that kind of sparked something. And he wound up getting a juvenile and he got it on frog le- raw frog legs from the Chinese market and oh. for like uh, international food market. And the, he just fed it to that, man. He Listen, I live in Kentucky. You can get raw frog legs at Walmart. Yeah, exactly. I mean, okay. and, and we used to go gigging together and we, we'd gig leopard frogs, but it was almost like we're going to eat them. Like mm-hmm. not, we're not going to feed them the snake. So, <laughs> but, but, exactly you're where you are i'm sure you'd have no problem you and your friends go do some gig some leopards gig some some bulls and call it a day you know yeah freeze them you know yeah i wouldn't i would hey if i if i got into the easterns i would want the the black and orange ones because yeah i've i found in the tobacco patch both like the solid melanistic ones and Mm -hmm. the black and orange ones in my school but uh the black and orange ones just are a lot more wow factor to me oh of course now the the western hognose i have it's they're more they're kind of more my morph project i've got a all three of mine are arctic uh nice got one female that is they're all they're all normals but arctics but they all carry they're all het for something i've got one female that is a uh arctic het albino I've got one male that's Arctic Het Sable, and then I've got one female that's a purple line Arctic uh, Het Sunburst. So it's both Het Albino and Sable. And uh, what I'm really going for with that is I want to make some of the Arctic Sable stuff just because when you cross the Arctic and Sable together, you literally get almost a blue or purple snake. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen some pictures of those. I want to say, I don't remember who you were talking to about those because that was something else they were they were going for too. It might've been Kevin Barron. Yeah. I think it was, if it wasn't Kevin, it was probably talking about it with Jake and Kevin. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I would like to take that eventually and maybe mix in some of the lavender morph and see what that does. Cause I mean, the sable almost completely knocks out the lavender morph morph by itself. But if you add the Arctic to lighten it all up, I wonder if you go more toward the purple spectrum or more spectrum. Yeah, that'll be awesome, man. Super cool. I feel like I feel like of all the morphs that are of different species that we keep in herbiculture, we're getting better and better with different spectrums with hogs. I really do. There's yeah. just there's so many possibilities. So, and it's funny we mentioned eastern hogs and Ryan Cox jumps in the jumps in the chat right when we mention it. So I've been trying to talk Ryan into uh, being a roadie with me to go down to Daytona next year. Do it's gonna get off or not? You guys should do it, man. I know. I told him I'm going. I'm absolutely going. But my wife is a school teacher, and my kid is in school, so neither one of them will go. And I just don't want to drive the twelve and a half hours by myself. So yeah, it's not that bad. Trying to talk Ryan into, I'm like, hey, listen, I'll I'll drive the two and a half hours to you if if you just want to ride along for the rest. Yeah, man. You guys just do it. It'll be good. That's pretty awesome. You got you got Cox on one side and you on the other, and you guys should you guys should correspond and rendezvous more, man. Get some herping yeah. in. Yeah, I I do want to do some uh, some herping more. I, I want to do some more herping on the east side of the state. It's just uh, with work and kids and 
Oh, well, yeah. uh, it's it's just so much easier to stay closer to home. But I definitely want to get out on the eastern side of the state because I still have never seen a Kentucky rattlesnake, neither one. So yeah. that's yeah. that's that's one of my goals for this next year. It was my goal last year, but we'll place it as a goal again. Yeah, man, and do, I'm I'm in the same boat, man. I've I've done a lot of South Florida herping. And there's there's a ton of species I have yet to see in South Florida, but I feel like I need to at least venture north more. Just it's just it's a hike, you know. Yeah. You guys don't have black rats. Do those even do those get into the the like southeastern part of the state? I have I have never heard of anybody getting a black rat around here. Now, whether they're actually said that they're here or not, I'm not 100% sure. I know that when you go north a little ways into Illinois, you see lots of black rats. But I have not seen any black rats pop up like on the ID groups or anything like that. The only only rat snakes we see around here mostly are the gray rats. But like I said, I'm not sure our gray rats isn't part of an integrated zone. Because they are, they're not, they're not gray. They're not, they're just not gray at all. They're, they're brown and they're a dark, dingy brown too. Yeah. I'm looking at a, at a map right now and I guess that would make sense. You guys probably wouldn't get them because I got confused on my geography and I thought Kentucky was closer to South Carolina than it is. (laughs) Maps are hard. Yeah, we don't get we don't get the black rats as far as I know. We don't get the yellow, but I've never seen a yellow rat. You know, all that stuff is out of our range. Uh, something that is very weird that supposedly barely tips into the state at about the same geography as the pygmy is supposedly we have scarlet king snakes. Mm-hmm. Wow, I've never, seen, I've never seen one, but I haven't either. I'm convinced they're not even real. <laughs> I've been trying to find them. Pop corals too. That yeah, well, I mean, I've, I've differences of actually seen corals. It's just been a very yeah. long well, time. I've and, never seen a scarlet, and I try to find those. Like when I'm out looking, I'm peeling bark on pine trees, man. I don't. Gotcha. I don't yeah, think they just. And LDL real. and around that area, like the same, almost the same geography as like the the northernmost point of the pygmies. Supposedly, we have scarlets, and I've never seen one. Uh, Phil Peak. He's a, he does a lot of field herping in Kentucky. He's posted pictures of them he's found. So they're here. I just, I've never been able to see one. Well, I've never found a Scarlet King in South Florida. I know plenty of friends that have, but our friends, Jeff and Kendra, Puget Sound Python, shout out. Oh when, they, when they were down for Daytona, our friend KJ put them on a spot and they found like friggin' 12 in a night. I think that's, that's what it is with those though, is like they're, they're, populations are like hyper localized to certain areas sure and sure. if they're not there they're just not there like i'm i'm more i'm in terms of ladies island in particular i'm i'm fairly convinced that there are some species that just aren't here yeah i've heard the same thing about pygmies i've heard that there's like there's yeah. pygmy areas or yep. not yep and well, I mean, I know in my county there's one spot that pygmies have been found. They're they're absolutely documented to have been there, but I still haven't gotten lucky and found them. Yeah, well, I think it's it's a it's a theme you'll see with like those small species that are that are, you know, they occupy very small areas, and so therefore, if you're going to find them, like they're going to be populated plenty in those smaller radiuses, right? 
but you're not going to see them sort of spread out like you would some of the bigger stuff like you know your rat snakes and things like that that that, that travel more because um, yeah. I can't imagine scarlets in particular pygmies for that matter too travel very far outside of wherever they're born you know like right where I mean right I'd imagine we're probably talking like maybe a quarter mile radius and even that seems generous but I don't know but I it, it does know. definitely seems like it's the case where it's like if there's if there's pygmies there it's a healthy population and it seems to be the same with scarlets yeah yeah <clears throat> well it's also kind of like that audio clip I sent you there today Justin which one the one I sent the audio clip I sent you oh yeah episode. that yeah um Ryan Cox says uh, next time he goes to Owensboro, he's going to hit you up, Dustin. Okay. Okay. Who's Owen? <laughs> he has a borough. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Good stuff, guys. Covered rename, a lot of good stuff tonight. Rename Ladies Island Smitty Borough. <laughs> oh, God. Then you'll have some Smitty's Borough locality corns. Hey. There you go. Man, so I got one of my. Uh, I won't say one of mine, but I guess it is one of mine. But one of the F1s from 2021, Jake somehow ended up with more males because someone doesn't know how to sex a snake, which is me. And I got a 2021 male back, and I'm I'm probably going to pair him back to the female next year. All right, cool. This be the first step in the uh, in the the line, the line project. I'm very excited about that. Nice. How's the uh, the uh, cut cutting uh, thing going? Uh good. I did. I weighed and fed everybody Saturday. Everybody had that week off because of Daytona. Um, wasn't a whole lot. So there was actually a little bit of a gain on the cut group throughout that complete bye week. Uh, and then the uncut group didn't even really lose weight. They pretty much just maintained, which I thought was interesting. Nice. So it uh, it continues. We'll see how it goes. That's cool, man. Good stuff. Good. I stuff. still have. I still number six, which is the non-eater, is still non-eaten, and that one's two grams behind everyone else now. So I think that'll be a good one to sort of show what what non-starters look like on the same timeline. Yeah, you know it's uh, it's frustrating, but I offer it. I need to try washing something and trying that. There's just a couple tricks I just haven't haven't busted out yet. But all the stuff from Daytona's eaten except for that zombie that I got from that zombie corn that I got from Alan. Um, and I think I just need to try live with that one. I think that's that's it. But yeah, everything else, like those Thayeri, like both monsters with food. Everything else, like eats like a champ. That Alterna that I got my dad ate without problems. So the uh, the Leonis you got from Chris, did you give that a, a boiled pink like he said, or you just gave nope. it a frozen thawed? Nice, thawed. nice, excellent. Frozen thawed. The first time I fed it, it it took a minute for it to realize what was going on, and then it grabbed it and ate it. And then the second time, I chased it around the tub for a few minutes, and then just ended up setting the pinky down on the hide, and it it ate it. So cool, cool. And then yeah, that that other Leonis. Yeah, the, the Leonis that I got from that older couple, man, that thing is like no games. Like saw the mouse, grabbed it, ate it, like it like it was starving. So nice. Awesome. 
Awesome possum. Scott said, or let the ones that refuse to eat not be something you choose to progress. Yeah, I don't know what this one's odd because all the others in that in that clutch, like every other of the eleven animals that that are siblings to that one, direct siblings, clutch mates, they're all eating great. Like none of them refuse food. I drop feed pretty much all of them. Um, this not this one though, like it's healthy still. It's not looking sickly or you know, it's not looking thin or anything like that. It's just not wanting to take off. So yeah, I don't know. I had one in my clutch that just would not eat and it's right now in the wine cooler. It's going to be there for a couple months. And when it comes out, it'll either eat or it won't. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to like force the issue, but I definitely want to try some, some things before I completely write it off. You know, I have a, I don't know how you guys feel about that. I kind of have a, a weird take on that. I know there's a lot of people that, that non-starters, they're kind of like, look, if it doesn't take off, it doesn't take off. It wasn't meant to be, which I, I understand and I get, but the way I see it, it's like, I'm the reason it's here in the first place. So I feel like I should yeah. at least try to get it off on the right foot. And then, yeah, if it's, if it ends up taking off, it's not something I'm, I'm likely going to breed more of, but that yeah, I'm kind of yeah, like you. I mean, I'll try every trick. I'll try the washing it and the boiling it and the leaving it overnight and the deli cupping it and the taking it for a drive. And then my last straw is usually put it in the cooler and brumate it. And yeah, yeah. Uh, if it doesn't eat after brumation, then that's it. I, I, I can, my conscience can be clear on that one because I tried everything I could. Yeah. But uh, I, I will try everything I can because. In my experience, even if they're kind of a slow starter and it takes some of those tricks, usually after a few feedings, then they're hammering it and they're fine. Yeah. It's like getting it started. It's yeah. like that first one is half the battle. Mm -hmm. But uh, if I can get it uh, after the brumation, if it goes, great. And if it doesn't, then I've, I've washed my hands because I've tried everything I could. Yeah. And Scott yeah. said at the same time, 5% of hatchlings would usually make it to adulthood. And it's like, I agree with that. But at the same time, we're, we're talking like captivity. Like, again, I'm the reason it's there. Like I decided to, to pair those animals. So I feel somewhat responsible for the reason that it's, it's there and I need to do what I can to at least give it the best shot. And again, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Um, but that's something uh, Eric Westmoreland was actually posting, talking to us about the other day was he, Every year, I guess he has a, a group of hatchlings because he hatches a ton of corns. Um, and his non-starters, he he puts them in the fridge. I think he said for like a month, and then he'll bring them back out. And he said that usually does the trick. So I don't know how long are you leaving yours in to get them going. What the when I brumate? Yeah, I, I'm just throwing. I, I usually throw the hatch. I'm going to throw the hatchling in. I'm going to leave it in for two months, and then take it out and see if it eats. And I think that's a I don't really want to put it in under for three months. That just seems like entirely yeah. long for something that has not ate. <clears throat> but uh, two months seems like a good middle of the ground. It'll get it down cool enough and long enough that I think if it's going to eat, if that's what it needs to kickstart that system, it will. And if it doesn't, then it just doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I see uh, both sides of it. I've but I mean, with us too, it, the argument about, not passing it on. I get that, but I mean, nothing we do in herpeticulture is natural selection. It's the exact opposite of that. It's natural selection. None of the albinos would live and 
none of the waffle, bacon, pancake, ball pythons would live because they'd be picked off very first thing when they see this bright yellow orange thing in the field. Right. So I mean, we're already we're already going toward producing genes and phenotypes that have no business in the wild and wouldn't make it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason. There's a reason mom has 12. No, I was going to say there's a reason why no one ever finds an adult leucistic in the wild. It's always a neonate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I, I I don't know. It's, um, I had a complete train of thought and it just got derailed. Damn it. Yeah, you remember at two in the morning in Texas. No, what it was was like if it's um you know, if it's like a particular line that is like notorious for being difficult to start in a species that is historically not difficult to start, you know, like some of the keys corns in particular, it's like I can understand sort of outcrossing or or producing as minimal amount of those as possible if if none at all you know if there's really not a whole lot of uh fruits in those in those loins then probably not worth pursuing but if there's someone out there that's willing to to put in the work i know chris has mentioned it with the leonis you know he's like some lines are are way harder to get going than others and i mean it is what it is uh, those alterna were i still have yet to find something that tops getting those alterna babies going but I mean, ultimately, if I get this corn that's been notoriously difficult to start, like I said, I've given most of them to kids as a pet anyway. If I can get it to start, it ain't like those genes are going to be passed on because I'm not selling right. it to a breeder. I'm, I'm giving it to a kid as a pet. So if it can just start and live life, then yeah, good for everybody involved. Well, yeah. what I'm curious about, too, when I hear that, especially when you're talking about like one animal in a clutch is like, Is it really, is one animal really that big of a concern to where that would like start this daisy chain of of genetics of animals that just don't start? To me, it seems like it would be a bigger, there needs to be more animals that are problematic than just. Yeah, if the entire entire clutch or litter was reluctant, then yeah, you got an issue. But, and it, it may not even be an issue. It may just be that they don't wanna, they wanna eat what they're supposed to eat. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I tried braining with this one. Um, I'm gonna try washing next just to see. I don't again. Have you tried a live pink? I did early on, but I probably need to come back to it. Yeah, I need dude, to I would wait on a female to pop with some some day olds because I need to yeah. get some of the rhinos so I can get the rhinos started. Yeah, man, I would just leave. Dude, everything loves a live pinky, you know. I don't know, man. Not everything because I left one overnight with this one, and it was like nah. But that was also. Like immediately after those first sheds. Yeah. Yeah. So. Give, you got to give it time to wake up, you know. Get on the train. Get on the train. So. Oh, well, this is a hell of a show, boys. This Absolutely. is a good time. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you, man. If people want to follow you or get in touch, what is the best way for them to do that? Uh, West Kentucky Exotics on Instagram. Uh, my email is westkentuckyexotics at gmail.com or you can look at West Kentucky Exotics on Facebook, but honestly, I'm not very active on that. I mostly IG or Facebook message me at Dustin Black. Awesome. 
Well, this Very episode cool. was brought to you by blackboxcages.com. Use that code THN at checkout. Save yourself a little bit of money. Get yourself a nice rack. Get yourself a nice cage. Get both. We're not partial here. We like it all. We use it all. You won't be disappointed. I started setting up the three-foot Gila enclosure in oh, my yeah. black box slider. I have been taking pictures, and the background is installed, and the excavator clay has been clumped. So uh, I'm 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 going to put some stuff out for for pictures and video. Very exciting. Yeah, black we'll we'll show that off when it's done, done, and ready to go. Oh yeah, I've seen the picture, at least the one picture you've you've shown me, and it looks yeah looks good. Yeah. So, yes, THN at checkout, Black Box, THN at checkout on fullbeastapparel.com. That's just for listeners and viewers of this show. Um, Phil has his Suboculares hat, which I will be making available here at some point soon. I'm going to be planning to get the Okatee hats back in stock at some point here soon. Uh, work's just been swamped, and I have not wanted my embroiderer to stop what she's doing with other orders to make my stuff. So Fair enough. But if you order shirts, I do make those happen, you know, quickly. So put an order, T, uh, code THN at checkout. It's 15% off. Um, again, just for listeners and viewers, I don't post that code anywhere else. Uh, Puget Sound Pythons, good people in the Pacific Northwest. The Scarlet King Magnets, apparently. Uh, Clearly. Or because Mother of God is like picture after picture after picture of Scarlet King. It's, it's like, like, oh, no, another one. Oh, look, same, another one. Same damn snake. They're just changing the background. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Cold-Blooded Caffeine. Again, we have an affiliate link in the description. If you click that and you end up buying something, me and Phil get a little something something as a result. Help your boys out. Cigars are expensive. And you get a tasty brew. And you get a tasty, yeah. I'm excited to get things that are coming down the, the pipeline yes yes the grinds yes it's all about the grinds uh be on the lookout for that i'm sure we'll we'll obviously do a, an announcement and stuff when that happens um and then i don't were we making any sort of formal announcement about the other thing or no i mean we can we can just yeah. a little something yeah just it's, we're bringing it back we're bringing the magazine back there it is yeah yeah. So what on? I changed. So we changed the name a little bit, which I've already gotten compliments on. Had Jen from Black Box was like, "Thank you." <laughs> I know her pediculture. Be it people talking about the network or the magazine, I know it can be a mouthful, and I know it's 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 a lot to say. Yeah. yeah. Um. So we just shortened it down to Hurt Magazine to keep it simple, sort of rebrand a little bit. Uh. The plan currently is to release it quarterly. Um, you know, Billy and Phil came to me and said, "Hey, you know, should we should we do it again and just sort of take some of the chaos out of it that we had when we were doing it yeah. monthly, make it less stressful?" You know, we said it was a good thing we had going, and let's give it another shot uh, and just make it less of a less of a chore, yeah, and more of a resource. And I mean, it was a resource, but. There was a lot of work that went into to doing that thing monthly. Um, you know, it's no it's no small feat, but I think quarterly it'll, it'll be a little more manageable, uh, especially with everyone's schedules and stuff now, and won't be as stressful on all of us. We can spare you know span things out a little bit. So currently, uh, if you have something you want to write, hit us up. 
you know, myself, Phil, Billy Hunt, um, message the network, any of the pages, whatever. Yeah. If you if you want to write something, we pretty much leave the content of whatever people write up to the author, which is something you don't really see very often. Um, because we want people to write about stuff they're interested in. We don't, I don't want to give someone who's not into Sailfin Dragons an article saying, "Hey, I need an article on Sailfin Dragons" when they're not exactly. in. You know, exactly. So if you've got something you're feeling particularly uh, jazzed about, you can hit us up. Um, we are definitely trying to get content together, sort of for the coming, the first re-inaugural issue, and then issues past that. Trying to get as much stuff in as we can so that we're not scrambling towards you know the closer to the, the deadlines and things. So hit us up. Uh, we are planning to have the print on demand option back. Um, we got to get issue back up and running again. So there's some like small logistical stuff that the three of us got to got to hammer out. Uh, but the plan is for it to come back. If you don't, if you're in Australia like Scott or you're anywhere in the world and you want to write, you know we're we don't turn down content unless it's something, you know, inflammatory or yeah, you know, over over overtly negative. I guess is a better word, but well opinion pieces we'll take. I like opinion pieces. I think it's cool stuff to have. Yeah, uh, as long as it's not, you know, again, derogatory or accusatory towards anybody in particular. But yeah, and it, it doesn't have to be <clears throat> specifically on keeping of a particular species or even even keeping general it could be book reviews that are you know herp related it could be field observations it could product be reviews. product reviews exactly so and yeah. it product reviews too it doesn't have to be something like reptile specific like we've done the wise cameras in the past which yeah. we use like things that you use in your room if you think it's a product like water filters i did one on the the pure water filter that i use and still use yeah um you know there's no shortage of, of options if it's something that you you want to tell the world about and you want to write a review about please do um again you know field herping opinion pieces travel stuff whatever sure, sure. uh industry spotlights so we're going to be bringing those back um yeah you know i think it'd be cool to do something with some of the photographers and stuff that we see and follow on instagram if we could do like a photographer of the quarter or something like that i don't know well yeah we got a ton of ideas but we're bringing it back um It'll be good. I'm excited. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of the formal announcement. So. Stay tuned. That's right. We will be back Thursday for THP. No idea what the plan is. Look at that. Phil got the shirt. He stole that shirt. Everybody know that? I did. He took all the shirts out of my bag and put them in his box in Daytona I, and then I, walked off with them. I, I picked it up in broad daylight and I scratched it. That's not stealing. That's taking. Scratch my CD. You scratched my CD. He's uh, like, oh, what are you doing over there? We're playing on your computer? No, I'm walking my dog. <laughs> uh, oh. All right. Thank you, everybody. Have a good evening. Bye.